0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Joysticks.
0: If everyone would like to buy the noise, okay, like we could do this.
2: Everyone's doing
3: it. But it's not (laughs) vulgar. Kids play with their joysticks day in and day out, chirping back and forth. Uh Everyone's doing
0: it.
2: But it's not violent.
0: <laughs> like, where are we supposed to go?
2: And everyone's doing it.
3: We're good, Clayton. Oh, you want to play Pac-Man? Eugene and Rummy? Oh, oh, oh crazy. it's been so
4: long.
1: Joysticks. <laughs> you and I have something in common
4: we both like to hang out in public bathrooms. No. Prepare yourself. I would like
0: you to meet Simba. A
2: film for people who are totally into fun. Strippedia. You got it. Games. Oh, damn it! And good times. You're running a garbage dump in here, and I intend to do something about it. You will not go to the
1: arcade again, right?
5: If I want to go to the arcade, like, I am going to go. Okay?
1: Just for the fun of it. If you win, I'll close the arcade down. It's more fun than games. <laughs> Joysticks.
4: I can't go on like this! Totally awesome video game!
6: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Back with me once again is Ms. Heather Drain.
0: Hello, hello.
6: Also back with us this week is Mr. Chris Cummins. Hey, everybody. 80s month continues with some totally awesome video games via Graydon Clark's 1983 film Joysticks. The film stars Scott McGinnis as Jefferson Bailey, the proprietor of a video arcade. Along with his two employees Eugene and Dorfus, the three get into all kinds of wacky adventures, usually involving video games, boobs, or a combination of both. Joe Don Baker plays the villain Joseph Rudder, who wants to shut the arcade down as it is a bad influence. Now we're going to be getting into some spoilers on this episode, so if you don't want to know if the bad guy is defeated and and how the arcade survives, please turn off the podcast and come on back after you've watched this movie. Now Heather, when was the first? time you saw Joysticks and what did you think?
0: The first time I saw Joysticks, I can't remember exactly what age I was, but I definitely you know, was like a, a little kid. And The two things I remembered about it was of course the infamous Joysticks theme song, which I, I know we'll probably get it, be getting into more about here later in the episode. Um, and also a gag involving a hot dog stuck in this girl's amazing cleavage. Um, you see an image like that at a young age. It's not really going to leave you know, your cranium <laughs> Anytime soon, um, I rewatched it, uh, so about two weeks ago in preparation for this, and it was almost like seeing a whole new world, uh, with adult eyes, a whole new world centered around, um, an incredible amount of titties and, um, popcorn stained video game arcade floors, and just, um, it's a universe. The universe of this film is unlike any universe, um, in the reality spectrum it's um it's something else
6: (laughs) how about you chris
1: Uh, i first saw this i guess it was uh my older sister i think rented it it was either her or my older brother so i was around eight or nine uh when when i first when i first saw this uh so they ran in on vhs and i kind of like snuck in the room and watched it with them i think my parents weren't home or something so we we watched some totally awesome video games and i i remember just you know Thinking this movie is absolutely dirty movie. Mom and dad would be pissed if they knew we were watching this. And also, I was super into seeing like all the arcade stuff because I was big on video games from a young age. So the the uh, the Super Pac Man and the Satan's Hollow uh, left more of an impact than the boobs. <laughs> so that speaks volumes about me.
6: I'm a late bloomer. I didn't come to this movie until just a few years ago, surprisingly enough. Like, you know, I, I, I can't say I grew up on Black Shampoo, but it definitely was a major part of my life, but it took me a long time to catch up with other Graydon Clark films. Uh, and this was one of those. And so I was, uh, this was such a nostalgia trip for me catching up with this one and just, yeah, seeing that video arcade. And I'm sure we'll talk a lot about our video arcade experiences if we have them. I mean, I think we're hopefully all of an age where we were able to enjoy arcades of some sort. I mean, I know that they still exist out there, but definitely not in that, as you so eloquently put it, Heather, the popcorn stained floor type of thing where you just have the place that is solely dedicated to video arcades, to getting those quarters out of our pockets. I mean, this was quite an era and was so wonderful to revisit through joysticks
0: oh absolutely i mean this this film is uh i mean right down to like the film uses a pac-man as a transition wipe for crying out (laughs) loud not even just once because the first time i was like oh shit that's cute be like the 10th time i'm like they are in it to win it like they're they're like we got this pac-man wipe but we're gonna use the absolute hell out of it especially
1: uh, during the uh, town meeting montage where it's pretty much on screen every 10
0: seconds. It should have been billed as a character. I mean, they should have really had the transition <laughs> labeled as a character.
6: The movie starts so awkwardly. I was rewatching it again uh, about a week or so ago uh, with the missus, and she was just giving me the hairy eyeball like, what is this? This whole thing with <laughs> Eugene at the beginning? because <laughs> Eugene is set up as our protagonist, kind of, just because he's one of the first characters that we see, and he <laughs> is being it's it's weird man because it's like these it, the 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 opening of the movie just doesn't feel like it belongs with the rest of the movie really because the two girls that are like hitting on eugene he pulls up to a stoplight they pull up to a stoplight they start making eyes at him they come over show him their boobs and they're like come on over <laughs> and then as he's like crawling across going into this car and you know they they can conf- confer with one another and like oh, i'm not sure if i can go through this and the other one's like oh well i really want to get into this sorority and that never comes back and it has nothing to do with the sorority <laughs> it's like what How, <laughs> am i missing something was there something else going on here
1: i, I oh. think it's that the runtime was originally like 60 minutes and they needed like another scene oh, so they wow. just threw that on <laughs>
0: Well, um, that scene actually, I think, is is perfect in two ways. I mean, and I didn't initially think that re- when, I, when I first rewatched it, I was like, "This is this is so ridiculous." But then it's like, the, the more I thought about it, I mean, this is great because you're setting up for the viewer for a world where beautiful girls somehow convince this this poor dork who's singing camptown races. <laughs> <laughs> like, seriously, and to get out of his car, leave it parked in broad daylight in the middle of a street, get in top of their open top car and be like, yeah, we're going to make it with you, you know? And he's like, okay. They embarrass him now. They do. Their humiliation of him does come up later on in the film because the, uh, you know, his boss at the arcade gets some revenge, which I'm sure we'll go into a little bit later, utilizing a uh, saucy game of strip video games. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, there were no. I wish like they had some Atari in this movie. Side note, because Atari actually did have a number of like saucy, uh, X-rated games that are completely. I, I hate using X-rated because they're pixels. I mean, <laughs> I don't, you know, like how <laughs> how explicit is it ever going to be when it's pixels? But. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, but I also, I think we need to mention the film's title intro, because you get the, the theme song, and you also get this woman who, in my notes, I refer to as Van Halen Blonde, which is now a descriptor. I'm claiming it, but... <laughs>
6: <laughs> <laughs> the opening is just, it, it is pure cinema it is so wonderful i mean Godard <laughs> could have dreamed about creating a sequence like this and never has come close i mean he, he's still around he can still try to top this but so far nothing has ever gotten near this
0: yeah it, it's great in clark's personal middle finger to eisenstein it really... <laughs>
6: <laughs> this theme song you were saying before we we started recording that if you hear this theme song once it stays with you to the grave
0: it actually reminds me a lot of like you know you there's some radio jingles you remember hearing as a kid, and you never get them out of your head. It's got like this radio jingle quality to it, where I mean, it's technically not a great song. You're not no nobody's gonna be like, you know, yeah, fucking joysticks, put it on, turn that <laughs> up, you know. But uh but at the same time, there's something so delightful about it that you're you're not gonna turn it off if you hear it. You're gonna be like, oh shit, that's the theme from Joysticks. <laughs> it's amazing. Like- I I feel like it's almost
1: like it's it's on the level of like a Tommy Two Tone or a Jay Giles band type song. I don't know if that's good for them or bad, but it has that kind of like, you know, that kind of like bar band done good sound to it. But it's just like sexual euphemisms for your penis and video games. Hey, here we go. Yeah. And it's uh, it's it, it is just an absolute earworm that will that will definitely stick with you long after you've forgotten about the movie.
0: Oh my god, the the bar band descriptor is so perfect, Chris. I love that. Um, <laughs> also, <laughs> can can there be a song that has a lyric that literally says sexual euphemism? <laughs> about how did you bring
6: about the penis? I think that's like ninety percent of Kisses songs, personally. Uh oh.
0: it's
1: very subtle. Yes. The joysticks theme song. Yes. Yeah. It's very <clears throat> understated.
0: Mike, I know you're not gonna hate on Rocket Ride, sir. Come on. Oh no. <laughs>
6: <laughs> well it so yeah, it's Eugene's first day at the arcade and so we kinda of follow him in and then almost as as soon as we follow him into the arcade and we see his Kind of his first day there and him meeting Jefferson Bailey, who's known aka Jeff Bailey, aka the same character name as our hero from It's a Wonderful Life. And it's just like this, this movie's peppered with like little goofy in jokes like that, like just that the whole thing takes place and Uh, in uh, River City. And so, of course, somebody says, oh yeah, there's trouble in River City. So I'm like, oh, nice little music man kind of thing that we've got going on. So there's little goofy things like that throughout this, and that's one of the things I appreciate about a lot of these Graydon Clark films is that, yes, it's a dumb boob comedy, but there's like other silly, funny to me, actually. Like, I I laugh more than I smirk jokes that are going on in this. And yeah, to... (laughs) To have uh, Eugene meet all these colorful characters in the arcade, um, oh, my God. <laughs> Just it, it was such a sign of the times, the guy who is imitating uh,
1: uh, Curly from, <laughs>
6: from The Three Scooges. I was like, is the Curly <laughs> shuffle out at the same time or what?
1: I think it, I think it had to be, oh. uh, because, yeah, that, w- that was something when I was watching it earlier today to prepare for this. I'm just like, what the hell is this have to do with anything else? And then I remembered, like, that big comeback of, like, Stooge Mania that was big from, like, 83 to 85, where the Stooges got really hot again. And, yeah, and this, this was, like, what, what, 82, this film that came out in 83? So, yeah, this is, this is right on top of that. But yeah, I'm sure Curly Shuffle—they probably would have loved to used, but uh, you know they weren't paying for music rights.
6: <laughs> yeah, they they <laughs> tapped right into the zeitgeist with this film. This is this is pure yeah. American id going on right now.
1: <laughs> it's it's it really is just like it, it is a perfect uh, time capsule. It's the sort of stuff that like writers like Ernest Klein, who did like Ready Player One, like that kind of nostalgia that they wish they could do as like as organically as this movie does, because it's just an absolute snapshot of like arcade culture. I mean, obviously very like I'm getting grandiose talking about it, but it's very like heightened and, uh, you know, sexually driven. But man, that's I watching that. I just had a complete sense memory to what the arcades of my youth were like, you know, um, minus all the Joe Don Baker, but you know,
6: (laughs) yeah. If only we had Joe Don Baker show up at our, our arcade. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I feel so (laughs) jerked.
6: Yeah, I mean you can smell that when I was watching it, I could smell that stale popcorn hot dog vomit kind of mix that was yeah. going on there. Yeah. <laughs> And we meet our third member of the triumvirate, uh, pretty quickly here, Dorfus, uh, the former valedictorian. Uh, this guy kind of reminds me of Barney from, um, uh, the, the Simpsons. Like there was that episode where you saw what Barney looked like before he started drinking and he was just, you know, so erudite and, you know, very professional. And then he took like one sip of beer and then he became the raging alcoholic.
1: Lacrimosis is to dyspeptic as ebullient is to effervescent. All right, Harvard, here I come. Psst, Barney, my dad's asleep. Want a beer? I don't know. The SAT's are tomorrow. I've got two words for you. Mellow out, man. Hmm? Hmm? All right, just one. If it'll get you off my back. (laughs)
5: Hey,
4: (laughs) what? my
6: life well dorfus's drug of choice is video games and now he's just become this complete absolute maniac for video games and i have to say i was very surprised that when eugene is there bothering him while he's getting the high score of pac-man and essentially interrupts the game i'm surprised that dorfus didn't strangle the guy right out
0: that was such a strange day too, because I love Eugene's main complaint was something like, you know, you you basically saying you need to go home and clean yourself up. What? Your your appearance is not, you know, like like the like the video arcade is like a five star restaurant or something. Like, no, sir, you need to you need to go, you know. And they're like, no, no, that's Dorfus. Like, oh, okay. <laughs>
6: and the way that he's there calling him young man. And I'm like, this guy's the same age as you, if not older. And I'm like,
1: what is your problem, Eugene? Yeah. Did you, Eugene not realize when, uh, where he'd be working when Jeff hired him?
0: The strange thing to me also is like Dorf is, I mean, obviously kind of playing into like the early eighties, late seventies, you know, TNA comedy sort of archetype of having kind of like the larger guy who's kind of allowed, who's sweaty and is always going to have like nachos or hot dogs near him at all capacities. But yet, there's going to be at least one woman that's like, you know, please take me, sir. But everybody else in the arcade, like most of the regulars there all look like good looking fraternity sorority types, which, um, my memories of 80s arcades are a little fuzzy because I was, you know, I was pretty little, but, um, I definitely do not remember, uh, the, that type. <laughs> arcades for my childhood did not have like good looking preppies in them for my memory but
1: yeah i i i have to agree with you 100% because i remember the there was a very uh burnout kind of vibe to the uh, burnout and little kids was the vibe of the arcade that the the arcades i remember growing up yeah there were were not very pretty people at all they were usually at the gap elsewhere in the mall you know
6: yeah i remember a lot of denim a lot of denim <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I guess actually that's sort of part of the joy of this film because I was actually something that hit me when I finished rewatching it uh, two weeks ago was that if they'd made this film like realistically, it would have looked a lot like the Rush music video for Subdivisions. Like it wouldn't have been. (laughs) Like nearly, it would not have been nearly as half as fun, and there would have been no boobs in that. The only you might have seen like a dude with a ripped open t-shirt, or maybe like that eighties stoner look, where like a denim vest and no shirt.
1: Some Neil Pert side nipple, if you're lucky.
6: Yeah, cigarette tucked behind his ear.
0: A cassette copy of Accepts Balls to the Wall, and a, a Dodge Dart. Actually, I kind of want to see that movie now too. We, we can have both, you know.
6: I uh, the the thing that gets me about the arcade is that the one person who you would think that they would welcome with open arms would be the, our, our, to me, the star of the show, King Vidiot. And for some reason, they don't like King Vidiot. I'm just like, well, this this is your people, you know? That like This guy comes in, he's got these four girls that surround him that imitate Inky, Blinky, Pinky, and Clyde, and they're making all the, the, the noises from the Pac-Man game, and I'm just like, yeah, this is his entourage, this is his place, he should be welcomed, as his, as his title says, as the king. He should be brought in into this place and all hail king video but instead it's just like do get out of here and i'm like what why, why are you saying that to this guy He is your perfect customer he's going to drop all kinds of quarters in these machines
0: King Vidiot was my favorite character. I uh, played uh, played by John Grease, who, of course, would later go on to actually have some mainstream fame. A lot of people probably know him best as Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. But um, he is fantastic here. He is totally like the Harvey Lembeck of the Joysticks universe. He is the Eric Von Zipper <laughs> of... <laughs> of joysticks right up right with the vidiots because you know like eric von zipper had like the the rats and he had those two like the two foxy rats. like he had like the the brunette and blonde and they're real like sassy and you know king Videot's got these hunt these really hot punk chicks which i wish we could have gotten more of those characters all those girls looked fantastic i'm like what? Are, what's their backstory you know but um <laughs> but he's i thought he was absolutely fantastic there should have been like a, a follow-up to this movie centered around the vid- at universe.
1: I couldn't agree more because the, the videttes home lives have to be fascinating. Like, they could <laughs> be, like, I imagine it's just like the uh, that after school special the day my kid went punk when they they just come home and they're like, no, we're really into Donkey Kong now. Suck it, mom and dad, you know, and just <laughs> tears at the dinner table. Yeah, that would be amazing.
0: Um, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of exchanges that are like, fuck you, dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think
6: they and, kind of went on to their own universe and, and ended up in the Fabulous Stains. I would have been all about
1: that. Oh, yes. Yeah. And they um, kind of reminded me of the girls in the uh, in the Fish Heads video.
6: Oh yeah, the, I can see that.
1: that that's uh, I kind of uh-huh. got that. Maybe that's the you know maybe that's because we're recording this on the day where Bill Paxton died and the Fish Heads video he directed and that's on everyone's minds. But yeah, I, I was thinking of them uh when I watched that earlier. So there's a weird connection. But yeah, that's I awesome. love uh I love a nice portrayal of 1980s punk girls on film. And these girls just walk around the bar, like they run around the uh, arcade and making those bleeping like Pac-Man sounds and and everyone just doesn't stop and applaud at them, which is nuts because that's one of the most amazing things to have ever happened in a, in a film.
0: Oh my God. And, and it happens like out of nowhere. Cause you're so, you, you know, you're like, what, what is going on? And I, I do have to correct myself. I think, Eric von Zipper's girls were called the Mice. Similar, nice. sim- you know, family, you know, similar animal family. But, <laughs> but no, the, the girls and King Video are made. And I love it that these punk characters, instead of being like, "Hey, we're gonna go see Dri," you know, they're like, "No, we're gonna go to the fucking arcade," you know, Pac Man, baby. Like that's like they should be they should be roading for the circle jerks. And yeah, they're, you know, <laughs> at the arcade, which, which, which all the better for the viewer.
1: And correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the arcade in this movie just called Video Arcade? I believe so. Isn't it so. just the most generic name? Like, it doesn't even, it's not even called Joysticks. It's just Video Arcade. Like, the signage outside says that. That's what it's referred to. So it's like, maybe that's why all the preppies and, like, you know, cooler people are there. Because, like, it's just the most generic, bland video arcade in in River City. Maybe there's an even cooler one that the the King Vidiot used to work at until he, like, you know, skipped work going to a G. G. Allen show or something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> yes.
1: Although he's way more flock of seagulls than Gigi Allen. That's true. You know.
0: Yeah. 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 <laughs> true. yeah. I don't think I don't think he would last too long at a Gigi show. I've... No, no. Yeah, once those fists start swinging, I think Vidiot would be probably a high talented out of air. <laughs> He's
6: got the, the pale face makeup going on, so it's very proto golf so to me, you know? I, I, I appreciate that one too.
1: It's so good. Yeah, the whole look of that character is, is the, the look and the existence of the character and the role he plays in the movie are just, just ridiculous.
6: And then can we talk about one of the more – the side character who is kind of – she's almost like a walking MacGuffin who is Patsy. And she's this valley girl who's hanging out there. And at first, I think she's just going to be this, like – Total throwaway character because it's her and her friend, and they're both valley girls. And for me, it's like I can barely understand what these girls are saying. I don't know if it's bad audio or just that my valley speak is a little, you know, rusty. I haven't, you know, listened to any Zappa lately to kind of catch up on this stuff, but just, I'm like, okay, yeah, she's going to be there, she's going to be annoying, and then she's going to go away, and then only to find out that she is the daughter of the Joe Don Baker character, so it is of crucial importance that she not go to this video card, uh, arcade. He is so mad that she has gone to this arcade, and he starts this one-man <laughs> Buford... <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> a, a vigilante thing to close down the arcade just to keep patsy away from this bad influence
1: do you think patsy do you think like kareem Rohrer to like uh to rehearse for this role she just listened to like the 45 of valley girl for like 10 minutes and that was it because it is probably the worst valley girl that's been ever captured on film
0: it was like a second language. I mean, I was almost like, should she be <laughs> subtitled? <I> mean,
1: <laughs> that would have been awesome had they subtitled her. <laughs> there should be a fan edit of that with fan subs. That would be great.
6: <laughs> oh, It's like the Jive Talkers in Airplane. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know what they say. See a broad to get that booty yak'em. Lay her down and smack'em yak'em. Cole
0: got to be. Her performance was very fascinating because it's it's (laughs) it it was the worst you because she nailed is the worst Valley Girl accent ever. But it was it's one of those things. I always have this story. Some things are so terrible they be they transcend. And it's like by the end of it, I'm like more patsy. Like she's fantastic. Like (laughs) she. I mean, nothing else in this universe makes sense. You know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that's a bit to mention the, the idea that her, her father, who's obviously this very like moneyed, esteemed person, this big man in the community, is upset that his daughter's at an arcade? Yeah, like in the in the age of like, you know, she could be like sorting coke at the local club and having to right. have, yeah. pay for abortions. But instead, it's like, oh, no, daughter of mine's playing Satan's Hollow, you know, or what? He doesn't say that. But, you know, it's there.
6: <laughs> yeah. It's like, haven't you read any Brett Easton Ellis? Come
0: on. Yeah. She's not sorting coke off the of dead hobos that she killed in an alley. you know. <laughs> she's playing Gallica, dude. She's fine. <laughs> she's doing great. <laughs>
6: Oh, but he is, he is so upset. And he has these, uh, uh, two nephews. So Patsy's cousin, uh, and those guys are just amazing. Um, the, the one guy, of course, John Deal, uh, I think a lot of people know from a whole lot of things. And he's kind of played the same character in a lot of stuff. But, uh, my favorite is, uh, Max, who played Daryl, or it might have been Daryl on the New Heart show. And I just love seeing him show up in this. And this is the most I've ever seen from this guy because I just remembered him from Daryl or Daryl from New Heart. So seeing him in here, hearing his voice was remarkable. And then, of course, getting to see him in drag was fantastic as well.
1: That sequence might be the funniest sequence of the film, I think, too, is uh, is when uh, King Vidiot is trying to seduce Maxine.
0: Oh my God! You know, you know me. Like I, my mind went to places of like, what if they? You know, what if he had carried this out? You know, what if they had the, the, the you know, Madam Butterfly moment with King Vidiot? But uh, that John John Moldstad is is great, and uh he um, I actually, I I kind of alerted Mike ahead of time. I, I actually got to meet him when I was about age seven. Oh. He was he was in Arkansas, which is yeah you know, where I'm from, and he was promoting the opening of of restaurant. I think it was actually a Subway. I'm not shitting you. Like I have <laughs> photographic evidence of this, and my grandmother took me to go meet him. And I did not want to meet him and not because anything against him. I actually, you know, I'd seen Newheart. I knew who he was and I, right. I liked Newheart, even though I'm sure some of the humor went over my head. But like, um, but I, the idea of meeting somebody off TV just scared me. And the, this man was so, he was so sweet. Like John Vold's dad was extremely sweet and patient with me. I finally did the picture with him. I look like I'm there's a gun behind the camera and I'm being forced to do this. And I'm so sorry if you ever listen to this podcast. Sir, I'm so sorry. You're absolutely lovely and um and you're a very good actor.
6: You know, I need a copy of that picture.
0: I may I'll send it to you. I don't think I'm gonna put it
6: publicly. <laughs> <laughs> I may send it to you.
0: But uh but he was wonderful. He he was a great sport. So um so thank you, sir. Thank you, John Vold's dad.
6: There's so many pieces of this movie like we, we covered the lemon popsicle films uh earlier in the year or, or late last year and there's so many things in this movie that remind me of lemon popsicle like one of the characters going in drag but the whole thing of them going to rudder's house and climbing up into the second story and and Dorfus or wait who who ends up it's, it's Eugene, Eugene that ends up yeah. in bed with Mrs. Rudder and this whole bizarre sequence of her and him kind of making it and then especially when Joe Don Baker comes in and is laying in bed with the two of them and she's still all over Eugene and we've got Dorfus farting and which then later reminds her of this thing I mean it's just this is fucking crazy and this sequence goes on forever oh my god <laughs> this is this is like putting the the alleyway fight to shame and they live you know this, this goes on for just way too long I'm like oh my god come on guys and I don't even know why they're there necessarily it's like please, there's there's nothing there where it's just like oh my god we have to break in this guy's house and get the thing you know they're just there and doing this and it's like wow okay when is this going to end
1: well (laughs) let let me ask you this mike because i think you i mean you know i i I know that you you clearly know a ton about greg and clark do you think the uh the lemon popsicle was a deliberate reference or do you think it was just a coincidence
6: i think it was just a coincidence okay i I imagine that this kind of stuff was just kind of in the air but at the same time i mean lemon popsicle was using this stuff the the um also the um you know, the remake of Lemon Popsicle was using pieces of other Lemon Popsicle films. So, Last American right. Virgin kind of was the template for this stuff, and that was what nineteen eighty
0: eighty one, I think, was Virgin, wasn't it?
6: Yeah. So it's we're, we're right there with this. stuff. Okay. I mean, Heather, did you see that when when we're watching this stuff? I mean, do you? I, I'm sure that you've seen. A a fair amount of boob comedies as this would be classified. (laughs) Would you say that this was kind of like a typical thing?
0: It felt like it, but in a way that I I didn't immediately think of an individual film that it made me think of. It just to me, it felt like um, you had sort of, there's always like these certain tropes in these films, and the uh, horny older woman, usually the wife of an uh, antagonist type character at the time, getting sexually into it, especially with a character that's not traditionally good-looking, in this case, Eugene. That, to me, feels like that has been used a lot in this genre. It's funny, because it's played so ridiculously that, you know, the sort of, like, slight date rapey, you know, animations, you know, because it's like, oh, here's your chance, Eugene, and it's like, that's probably not cool, sir. Like she, yeah. <laughs> maybe you shouldn't do that. But it's like, I mean, it's joysticks. I mean, you cannot, if you take anything seriously in this movie, then you're missing a point. It's not a feminist parable. It's a it's a wonderfully brain damaged <laughs> early 80s comedy. And I capped that scene was capped with a, a fart joke. So there you go. A disgusting and amazing for a joke.
6: I'm sure Camille Paglia somewhere Gosh. has written a treatise about this in gender politics, but you know uh, I, I didn't find it when I was doing my research.
0: <laughs> I don't ever want to read that <laughs> if it exists. I don't I know it doesn't. Let's look, don't even put that out in the universe, Mike. That's like that's like invoking an iPod or something. <laughs> like don't <laughs> don't don't let's not even speak of this matter
6: (laughs) i picture camille paglia at home with this on the old time radio and she's you know doing the new york times crossword puzzle hmm that sounds like a rather interesting idea
0: (laughs) oh god that's oh that would that would hurt my brain some some things marry well for that kind of criticism joysticks is not
1: (laughs) no yeah
0: Heavens no. Plus, I mean, you know, you could get into how the fart, you know, Dorfus's, um legendary farts, which comes back into play later in the movie. Nice little LeRonde there with the flatulence and how it's actually a cry of man's existential, you know, crises of wanting to be the real primates that we all truly are.
6: Dorfus can't necessarily express himself through his words, but perhaps through his flatulence.
0: Absolutely, he's obviously a heartbroken man. You know, this man of, of former glory uh, now has been reduced to, uh, you know, uh, uh, to his most base self—a man who f- feasts on the, the meat of the trimmings in the form of hot dogs. Can only be stimulated by video games. So he can't even—he can't even be intimate with the woman. His id is beyond that. He can only express himself through farts and video games.
6: I almost see him as a living incarnation of the id, whereas we have Eugene as the superego and then, of course, Jeff right there in the middle as the ego.
0: <laughs> I, I just wondered, I think this all goes back to Chris's most amazing phrase earlier in this episode, which I wrote down, which is Neil Peart's side nipple. And I will bring this probably up again <laughs> later on tonight, because that is, like, my favorite thing. And uh, and that's probably speaking of my own cry for help, my own id <laughs> screaming. You the referenced face. the
1: video. I was just in awe of that and. Re- Responding to that because I knew exactly what you meant. I
0: think we should all view Dorfus as a as the sad the sad eyed man, uh, just knuckle 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 dragon his his way to the video game glory because he's a shell of his former self.
1: I think it's just that you know Dorfus farts, so he shall not scream.
0: Well, you know, I think it harkens back to Harlan Ellison's famous short story. I have no anus, and I must fart. You know. <laughs>
6: I think James Cameron ripped him off of that. Yeah,
0: I'm sorry. I hate myself for that joke. If it's any consolation, I'm sorry. I love Harlan Ellison. Too. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm gonna write apology letters to Harlan Ellison and John Volstad. So. Uh,
6: well, you know, you can just contact uh, William Patterson. He's huge friends with uh, with Harlan Ellison, so I'm sure he'll pass on the message. Two people listened to that joke and got it. Just two. <laughs>
0: But they're too. I can give amazing. you their
6: name and address after this podcast, and you can write to them.
0: <laughs> well, speaking speaking of flatulence and the id, I love it that hot dog. Hot dogs actually do play a very huge part in this film.
2: You know, hot dogs get a bad rap. They got a cool shape. They got protein. You like hot dogs, right?
0: I haven't eaten a hot dog since the 90s, and maybe it's because of this movie. I don't know. But uh, a friend of mine once said that he's like, you know what they're made from? And I'm like, what? And he goes, The Soft Meats. And that was like, oh, Lord, okay. (laughs) The
1: Soft Meats is also a band that King Vidiot would see, I feel.
0: I like to think he was in that band.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Soft Meat Manifesto? What?
0: (laughs) Ew, yeah. <laughs> uh, this, in a way, this movie is sort of it's like it's like a video arcade hot dog. You know, it's like it's nothing, nothing in it that you should eat. But yet it's shiny, it's glistening and you're drawn to it.
6: Yeah. And it doesn't fill you up at all. Not nutritious, <laughs> but but delicious.
1: It's fun at the time for sure.
6: <laughs> well, do you want to talk about that that hot dog scene that scarred you for life, Heather?
0: This scene makes no sense. There's so many things in this movie. I'm like, this makes no fucking sense. Uh, so Eugene's behind the counter, and there's this beautiful, busty, uh, blonde Kel surprised, and you know that comes up to the <laughs> counter, and she's got her cleavage out. She is primed and ready to go to a Doctor Hook show. I'm sure. Uh, Or maybe a Dr. Hook video. But anyway, so she asks for a hot dog. And Eugene, of course, because he's the clumsy nerd, somehow slips. And the hot dog inexplicably lands in her cleavage so firmly. And uh, so tautly that he can't remove it. And he's all like, hey, you know, it's all awkward with it. And he can't remove it. And Everybody's just laughing. And she's just smiling like, you know, oh, you know, instead of being like, that's gross. I have this mystery meat lodged in my boobs. So now my my breasts are going to smell like fucking hot dogs all night, which I mean. That's, I would personally, as a woman, not want any part of my body to spell like that, but um, that's just me. Uh, yeah, it's 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 weird. It's like, it's an obvious, it's such a blatant gag to the point where I'm surprised they didn't have somebody bring a taco in there and have him accidentally throw a taco, like a hot dog taco, or, or you know maybe a hot dog flying through a donut or something. I mean, it's so it's so blatant. I just
6: don't know why he has to use the tongs. It's like, couldn't you... <laughs> <laughs> if, if it landed in my cleavage i'd probably use my fingers and pull it out myself rather than having eugene use yeah
0: yeah, yeah. i would probably she'd pull it out and throw it at him like that would have yeah been, that would have yeah. been great also what the hell is in that hot dog where it's that it's that it's that tongs i think would have broken that apart at one point is that is there hot dogs like so it's like those gas station hot dogs that have been cooking since like 78 is it <laughs> it's
6: it's one of the uh, like the Coney Island around here, where you had the hard skin on it, I think, it, where like it takes you have to use the molars to crack through That <laughs> oh, thing. Oh, gross! Oh my god! <laughs> Lafayette Coney Island. Be sure to stop by when you're in Detroit.
1: I wish there was like a making of documentary on the DVD that would that that would show you like the filming of that sequence and how long it took to just edit together the hot dog going through the air and then landing perfectly in the cleavage. And if they use a double sided tape to keep it, you know, sticky (laughs) there or exactly exactly what happened in that in the making of the sequence, you know, was it given to a dog on the set after it was used in the scene? I don't know. These are things I'd like to know.
6: I'm kind of bummed because John Grise kind of talks a little bit about that, but it was kind of before the interview proper started. Okay. But he was talking about just how serious that moment was and just, you know, how uh, he was like, yeah, I couldn't believe I come in and Graydon's there. And he's just like, no, no, no. Now move it a little bit to the left and, you know, shoot it, lining up the shot and stuff. (laughs)
0: Uh Oh, Oh my God. That's amazing. (laughs) Can
6: you imagine doing, like, the finger window and, like, kind of framing that up, right?
0: Oh, my God. Uh, I like to think that that they spent, like, eight hours on that. Like, that poor actress was probably like, are we done yet? They're like, no, no, honey. We got to move to the hot dog. (laughs) Oh, my God.
6: (laughs) Stanley Kubrick's. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> Stanley Kubrick's joysticks. <laughs> it took Stanley like, five days to shoot that scene.
1: She absolutely became a vegetarian after that scene, for sure.
0: You know that was kind of the beauty of like this this era of comedies is they that seemed to be like you know the the ones that are striking always have at least one slightly, like, sort of pseudo-sexual scene that is, like, that is surreal. Like, it's not firmly placed in any sort of real human, like, sexuality or courting ritual. <laughs> it's just like, hey, <laughs> hot dog in the boobs, let's go with it. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, like, let's let's do this. And there you go.
6: Well, I was very surprised when I was re-watching this, and all of a sudden it turns into this big video arcade fight between Dorfus and King Vidya because it's again it's like Vidya what are you doing here you know you got to get out of here and Vidya makes this bet where it's like if I beat your best player then I get to stick around the arcade and if you win then I you know am banished from the arcade and again I, I like I said I still don't know what why Vidiot is banished from the arcade, but I'm like, okay. And then they have this big video game fight, and I was like, oh, this is the climax of the movie, and I'm checking my watch, go. what the hell? Because <laughs> like, this is, by, from all intents and purposes, this is the climax, only to find out that there is an echo of this scene later on in the film. I'm sure, uh, what is it, has, has talked about this in one of his many documentaries. Amazing scene where they're playing Satan's Hollow, and I had to say, I, I felt so bad, because I just did not recognize this game whatsoever. There's so many games I recognize, but this was one that just never came across my radar until this film.
1: I would agree with that. Like, it's... And I have, um, like, for PlayStation 2, I have all these compilations. I'm sure Satan Hollow is, is on one of those, and I've never played Satan, Satan's Hollow, and I, I think, like... From the, from the movie, this is, this is just, uh, that's the only place I know it from. Was there, I'm assuming there was some sort of tie-in deal with Midway to let them use like the Pac-Man and the Satan's yes. Hollow. Okay. Yeah, there would have to be. So it was probably they, they wanted to promote the film, the, their game, and they thought it was really going to be something. It looks fine enough. Um. um. But I'm way more interested in like the strip Pac-Man game they have that I'm sure was clearly just created for the movie. Speaking of saucy pixels.
0: Saucy pixels, <laughs> Yes, yeah, <that's laughs> that may, yeah, I was wondering about the licensing. With With this gig, I'll let me, know, Pac-Man was huge, I mean, yeah. I, mean oh, yeah. I mean they're there you know, there's a whole generation you know now who probably this film is going to be an an abstraction to them for the most part. I mean, console gaming still exists, but gaming in general is just so different. but yet I think most almost everybody still knows the character of Pac-Man,
6: well, he was a major star in the film Pixels,
0: the strip Pac-Man. Uh, scene, so we should probably go go into that with the two sorority girls making their comeback.
6: Well, these girls are everywhere anytime there's a bare breast that is needed, these girls are there
0: because I think the whole um ooh the whole great sort of uh fantasy sequence of sorts well, I'm jumping ahead that there are some great fantasy sequences coming oh up during uh, during a court scene that we we will have to touch upon. <laughs> They're so good, but yeah, I love that these girls. Are like, they're, they're like, ooh, yes, come on, they're clearly trying to seduce George or Jeff, wait, Jefferson. I was thinking because of the George
6: Bailey, yeah, uh, or George Jefferson or George
0: Jefferson. That would have been amazing. (laughs) And that he has a, his old, like, little broom. Like this secluded room where there's strip Pac-Man, just that, hey, this is my strip Pac-Man room, which the weird thing is this arcade's owned by um, his grandfather, I believe. Yes. So is the implication that his grandfather's getting it on with the... The sexy young girls in the strip <laughs>
1: arcade or oh, I got the impression that that was absolutely his grandfather's fuck room, especially at the end where like the grandfather showed up with like the the hot the stereotypical hot young nurse at the end. I thought, oh well, this makes sense this is these these dudes just have this generically titled video arcade." Just strictly so they can get laid.
0: That makes sense. So I think I think we can all summarize that his grandfather's going to pass away with the most awkward boner ever.
6: Yeah, there's definitely a sex swing that's in that room someplace. I'm just not sure where it's at.
0: Boy, nobody <laughs> wants to think about their grandparents that way. You know, I feel I feel bad for for Jeff. <laughs> <On that. laughs> but um, so basically, while this session's going on, Sutter comes back to the arcade to try and maybe break some bread make amends and of course right as he does this the girls are topless and then eugene and dorfus set off like this fire alarm and they've come running out in their panties and topless and sutter's horrified and they get a polaroid of him with the two girls bare breasted and this is all going to come back into play later on but uh so the the girl so eugene gets his revenge and more titties I don't, I don't know how yeah. else to wrap up that scene. <laughs> What's not
1: adequately explained is, like, why is is Dorfus and Eugene, like, putting the fire extinguisher in the room to, like, halt Jeff's antics? Is that from earlier in the film to to get revenge against Jeff when he uh, sent Eugene out to investigate the van that was a rock in? and uh he he wound up inside the hot tub that was inexplicably inside the van. was this like a revenge scheme i was I was kind of confused by what Dorfus and Eugene were doing on the roof to begin with when they were spraying the fire uh the fire ho the uh, fire extinguisher inside the room.
6: yeah, it's like are you guys trying to cock block him or is it this revenge against the girls for taking the, the photo of Eugene's Boner earlier or- <laughs> <laughs>
0: I I assumed it was the latter I mean especially with you know the the polaroid camera being time just right for somebody to get a picture of the girls to uh presumably kind of for their future humiliation to kind of get revenge for Eugene and uh them stealing his pants and then, well they returned his pants but yeah right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> this movie has a layer of complexity that I don't think uh, I fully realized until just now. No,
6: I can't adequately explain it. I mean, this is one of those puzzle films like the Sargosa <laughs> Manuscript, you know. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff happening in this movie.
0: It's got all the subtlety of a naked clown with a hammer. It, uh, yes. It you
6: know the color of pomegranates? It's kind of like that, but with video games. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, uh, well, Mike, you you bring up a very excellent point in the script, speaking of complexity with this film, is why do you guys think that Jeff doesn't like Vidiot? That made no sense to me, because Vidiot, he obviously loves games, seems to be a good customer. His ladies are obviously, like, all about the arcade. And yet, he's like, you know, you can't play here. They have this, like, him, you know, Vidiot versus Dorfus. Uh, why... But I, I didn't think video was that bad. I mean, that's why I, he made me think of Eric Von Zipper in the Beach Party movies. Because Eric Von Zipper never really does anything that bad. Like, right. he's slightly antagonistic with the Beach Party kids. But he's pretty harmless. And so is his gang. Uh, well, they did kidnap Donna Mills. and Yeah, you know, beach blanket bingo. But it ended up being, like, a very sweet thing, you know. Um, And plus it led to her being kidnapped by Timothy Carey. So, you know, right on with that. But, yeah, maybe that's why he also made me think of the whole Eric Von Zipper think, too, because you know, basically he's kind of leading up. The only thing is his characters used to lead up to more interactions with Sutter, who's the true villain of the piece
6: sometimes I think that King Vidiot is kind of the dark mirror image of Jeff because Jeff, uh, we find out at one point early in the film does not play video games. He might run an arcade, but he doesn't play video games or at least he doesn't play them anymore. And so we've have this mystery that's hanging over the film until kind of around the third act reveal. And then when it's revealed, it's just like, what? (laughs) (laughs) It kind of reminds me of Chota boy and orgasmo. It's just like, Hey, Dad. Mm Mm-hmm. I
5: don't think I'm going to do Hampshire style anymore.
6: That's nice. That's such a weird... Talk about, like, dream sequence slash flashback kind of thing. That's a weird thing where Jeff's making it with this girl in this flashback, and then, what, her dad comes in and finds (laughs) them and then starts beating the girl? I'm just like... This is way serious stuff in this boob comedy. What is going on here? And that's why he can't play video games anymore is because he remembers the, well, the boner killer of the dad coming in, but also the dad beating his daughter. It's like, the whoa, whoa, whoa. Talk about after school special stuff.
0: Yeah, that was that was very strange. I also thought what was really weird is that, um, if I'm remembering this correctly, Jeff, basically says that was his first time so this is like him losing his virginity oh. and but the thing that i thought was strange is like he lost his virginity in a room filled with mirrors uh and red light that does not seem like a virginal room to me <laughs> but, but again just another flourish in the joysticks universe but yeah no i thought him the dad beating the you know the girl's like whoa that's
1: It's a weird tonal shift to have at that point in the movie.
6: Yeah, yeah.
1: Because until then, everything's been pretty rosy.
6: I mean, things get a little serious when we have the city council meeting and everyone is coming out speaking against Jeff and just talking about the dangers of video games. You know, the the coach is up there talking about all the the men on his teams or the boys on his teams getting the sore wrists and everything. And the the nurse talking about how the boys play with their joysticks and doing some very uh, graphic uh, hand motions with that. And then, of course... Sutter or Rudder up there, you know, talking about uh, just how bad these video arcades are, but yeah, I mean, that seems like it's going to be the darkest time of Jeff's life, but only to find out that the there's not enough evidence against him, and the whole case is pretty much dismissed.
0: Yeah, that city council scene does feature, I absolutely loved, you know, when you have Rudder, I keep—I think I called him Sutter earlier, probably because Sutter wine, like that Sutter home wine, is a great pairing with this movie. So, <laughs> any of you sommeliers out there on a budget, <laughs> you know, you know what to drink with this film—the
6: cinematic sommelier. I know there's a podcast out there called that. <laughs>
0: absolutely, absolutely. We. We've done one or two films, Mike, on the show where I would pair it with Mad Dog 4040, but I'm going to try and toss it up a little bit here and say, set her home. <laughs> but, but no, Rudder, Rudder starts talking about what a, what a den of sin the arcade is. And you, you get treated to this like fantasy sequence where everything looks infernal. You have like implied sort of orgiastic behavior, uh, right, right, right with Dorfus being fed grapes by, you know, nude women. I believe there's a mud wrestling. There's like mud wrestling. Yeah, there's <laughs> mud wrestling. It's glorious. It's absolutely glorious. There's like sort of like whips and it, it just uh, it, it totally reminded me of like I don't know, Caligula meets a wasp video. I don't know what is <laughs> this movie reminds me of a lot of music videos, I guess in some ways because of, of the era. But um, uh, it's great. And then you have you know Jeff up and he presents a sort of like divine like everything's bathed in white. He's like, no, it's pure clean fun, fun for the kids. Even though there's still like. I think, doesn't Eugene touch a girl's boob? And he's like, oh, I'm accidentally, I'm so sorry for accidentally brushing up against your breast. You know, it's right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and of course they, and they have a nurse there, like before they, they do the, take the stand talking about, you know, the dangers of, uh, console gaming. And it's, uh, and then Patsy speaks allegedly English and, you know, in defense of the guys. <laughs> So yeah, but those I thought those sequences. I, I to me those were some of my favorite scenes in the film. Yeah, those
6: were pretty remarkable. That was it was a, a true uh, testament to Graydon Clark's filmmaking ability with those sequences.
1: I'm just laughing because like the the, the one sequence where it's like depicted hellish. It, it really is just like it reminds me of uh like the old commercials they used to have for like Plato's Retreat in the 70s. It's just it's very much like. We got games here to enjoy. I don't know why I'm doing a Tom Carvel voice, but it's just yeah. <laughs> it reminded very, very much of that kind of aesthetic they were going for there.
0: Going back to King Vidia, he does have uh, I for me and uh, Mike and Chris, I'm sure you guys may agree with me on this. I know Mike, you will. Uh, he has the absolute best line in the film, and that's when Rudder is is basically trying to form an alliance with King Vidia, and. He actually, this, this cracks me up so much, legit. It's, he says something too, like, you know, you and I have a lot in common, and and it's like, oh, you like hanging out in public bathrooms too. yeah uh, 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 and john is it grimes i've been saying grimes,
6: grimes yeah
0: grimes he i mean he's great and everything i mean the they, they, he's a very very talented hilarious you know actor and his delivery of that because he just looks so happy to be like oh wow this guy hangs out public bathrooms too you
6: know? just at the beginning of that scene where it's just like you know i told you to you know come in through the door i don't like doors you know and, he, and then we i don't like chairs just everything <laughs> He's rebelling against everything. He is that Marlon Brando rebel, you know? What are you rebelling against? What do you got? You know, he'll do it. He'll rebel against anything. If he was renting a VHS tape back then, he wouldn't rewind it.
0: I don't need your fucking rules, man. (laughs) I rewind for nobody. I mean, oh my God. Even if somebody hates this movie, they would have to admit that that line... And John Gray's delivery of it are just perfect. So funny.
1: Yeah, that leads directly into like my favorite sequence of the uh, of the movie, which is the uh, King Vidiot and the Videttes riding on the little mini scooters to create a disturbance inside the arcade, which is just yeah, so so bizarre and and uh, that shot of them all on the road with these little these little like i don't know shriners type motorcycles is just is is fantastic it's it's really it's that is their plan not to destroy video games or do any do any destruction of property but to have them ride around in circles inside the arcade and people just lose their shit it's so nonsensical that i just you have to respect that
6: I was expecting like the ride of the Valkyries to come up when they cut to that shot of him and <laughs> <in> the Vinettes <laughs> driving down the road. I was just like, wow, this is fantastic. And yeah, they just I, I don't know how you could even fit on one of those bikes and I, I just admire that all of them did that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so good.
6: Again, the behind the scenes feature where you just see them wiping out over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> oh man and yeah that that really brings us to our our finale because now you know the 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 shoes on the other foot we've got you know sutter or rudder making these uh, he's he's using king vidiot now to destroy the video arcade and yeah people are losing their shit because their little bikes <laughs> riding around <laughs> and, and uh, there's the second video game challenge uh and now it's supposed to be again it's supposed to be dorfus versus King Vidiot, but then Dorfus gets kidnapped by Max and Arnie, and uh, taken over to uh, Mr. Rudder's house, and so then Jeff has to step up, and kind of overcome his vertigo I was reminded of uh, I don't know if this was intentional but I was reminded of Scotty and, and vertigo here with him having you know these problems where he looks down at the video screen I was surprised they didn't do that zoom in pull out kind of thing <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> as he's trying to play super pack but really he's like you know he's practically sweating and he just can't handle playing super pack which was the uh, the awesome uh, brand of pac-man God. which I barely remember though I, I do remember it happening I just remember the, the pac man being really big on it
1: it's a terrible game <laughs> <Yeah. Okay. laughs> it's, it's atrociously bad yeah
6: i was i posted a little bit earlier do you guys remember baby pack where it was like yes. a mix the of...
1: pinball and video game <laughs> hybrid yeah yes yeah. yeah
6: that was something that, that, was, that was a big one of those deal like... for
1: me as a as an eight-year-old in shucky e. cheese discovering that <laughs> and then realizing that i did i learn about sex from pac-man i don't know I may have. Um, <laughs> that
6: there was a Mr., or a Mrs., a Mr. baby, and a, the baby Mrs. And a and Super?
1: This is yeah. what happens. Yeah, Super, I get all. And then when they got in the Professor Pack, I think that's why I was into, like, a lot of my college professors. I don't know. Mm. It's a lot yeah. of things. There's a thesis waiting to be written there. Camille's
6: scribbling right now, I know. Jesus, <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, but no, uh, Super Man was a terrible, terrible game, but. I'm sure Midway had huge hopes for it that they would recapture Lightning in a Bottle for a third time with that, and just didn't didn't turn out that way. I have to admit, I actually
6: like Mrs. Pac-Man or sorry, Ms. Pac-Man better than the original Pac-Man. Just something about the gameplay for the I, little I technology. agree.
1: I could not agree more with that assessment. It's my favorite uh, video game of all time. Yeah.
6: Oh wow. Good. Yeah. I'm glad we can agree on something here. <laughs> and talk about uh just a uh powerhouse of editing here we've got the final contest happening and we're cutting back and forth now between Dorfus over at Rudder's House the contest itself between King Vidiot and Jeff, and then also the mayor has shown up at the <laughs> arcade, and Eugene is showing the mayor how to play these video games. And so we're cross-cutting between these three scenes, and eventually the two nephews leave Dorfus alone, but then um, Mrs. Rudder comes in, and, and after Eugene farts a few times, she recognizes his, uh, l- let's say, his uh, w- w- pheromone uh, odor if... and, and his... Uh, she remembers the night of passion that she had uh, with him, but it was really Eugene. So she's all about making it with him, but cuts him free, and he's able to come back to the arcade, and you would think he would save the day, but then he and Eugene really do something nice for Jeff, and they make him play through the pain of his past.
0: <laughs> this, this movie. Oh my, oh my. god. <laughs> <laughs> this movie. It's like it's I, I cannot think of any other film that has used a midway game as a form of an est seminar but I or I don't know if that's the right comparison. It's like this is therapy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will actually give it points for that because it would have actually been a, a much easier and convenient thing to have Dorfus come in at the last minute and take over right. and win. And so the film kind of opting for a different approach, I, I, I've give it some, I'll I'm i some. give it some points. That was cool. That was unexpected. Um, the mayor becoming an instant gamer. To the point where rudders all, you know, like mayor, you know, trying to chat him up, and he's like, you know, give me a token. He's hassling from for tokens. This movie, <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this movie. Now, I, I do have to ask you guys because I felt like the latter half of this film, we were kind of maybe slightly building up to Patsy and Jeff, mm. you know, because yeah. she seems to look yeah. at him very adoringly and she's you know she's cute i mean english is not her first language that's not her fault because i kind of have expected like okay you know he he'll get through the pain and win and then he has this new girl like can kind of build a new life for himself now that he's overcome Uh past traumas and he's got patsy who's been very loyal to the arcade despite probably gonna have any money that she gets from her daddy cut off now and instead we have the grandpa come back with uh with you know Jeff's uh, first love.
6: Yeah, Sandy has returned.
0: The return of Sandy. It's it. Patsy actually made me feel like not. I mean, as much as one can feel sad watching Joyce, <laughs> I actually felt really kind of bad for Patsy. I was like, aw, I don't know. Did you guys pick up on that too?
6: Well, you know, uh, so many of these movies are all about the coupling, and um, I was. I was surprised that Sandy came back, uh, but now Jeff is a better man. He's able to kind of, you know, look back at his past and reclaim that. But I was wondering if Patsy maybe might end up with Dorfus because he's the only one. I mean, because spoilers, Eugene ends up with Mrs. Rudder at, at the end of the film. And uh yeah, Jeff's got Sandy and Patsy and Dorfus. They're kind of, you know, out there rudderless. So uh, maybe they should uh, get together with one another.
1: I, I I agree because I thought that that's kind of the route they were gonna they were gonna take too because they like the Patsy character like like was discussed earlier you didn't think she was gonna be anything and then she turns out to be like oh she's kind of important to what's happening here and why you know Rudder hates this arcade so much but yeah it, and it would have been what it, what an fu to to him it would be uh to her father if she wound up with this big oaf who who just lives for the arcade that would be great.
0: You may have outfought the movie. <laughs>
6: <laughs> I think we've been doing that quite a bit this episode.
1: It, Joysticks fan fiction. Joysticks 2, the next day. Yeah, because I was actually... Rival Arcade like, opens across the street, and they have mm, put it out of business. Oh, man.
6: And then that's when Vidya gets to redeem himself. Yes, oh, yeah.
0: Yes. Mm. Oh, my God. And Lee, we got to have Lee Vang somewhere.
6: Oh, please. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes Lee Ving. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, please. Oh my god. Well, I mean, Mike, when you talk to, to John uh John Grise, do you did you get the impression he might be open to continuing his uh his role?
6: I'm very excited for you guys to hear this because yeah, I think he considers King Vidiot to be one of his uh his high points of his career. Wonderful. So I don't see him having any problem coming back and reprising that role, especially now that he has so many years of experience under his belt. And, you know, gaming has changed quite a bit, too. And we'll be sure to talk about that in the second half of the show. But first, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with director Graydon Clark, and the second is with, as we said, King v himself, Mr. John Grise.
7: You guys look like – what do they look like,
4: Jimmy? Dorks. They look like a couple of dorks. If you're looking for dorky, geek-filled content where you can nerd out over movies, television, comic books, and so much more, then you've come to the right place. The In the Mouth of Dorkness podcast is bringing geek-related content to you three times a week. Hey, everyone. I'm the Turtle Dork here at Mod. On Mondays, we drop our Weekend Dork episode, which is a recap of sorts, where we discuss the most pertinent geek-related things we did in the previous week.
0: Hi, I'm Wife Dork. And on Wednesdays, we drop our homework cast episode. Each week, the dorks take turns choosing a movie for the month's chosen dork to watch and review. Like Heat, or Star Trek II, or Green Room.
6: Howdy, I am the Mouth Dork. And finally, on everyone's favorite day of the week, we drop our Fistful Friday episode. Each Fistful episode is basically a top five list related to movies, comics, or some other geek-related topic. Because
1: we all know at the end of the week... We need a little fist of Xander Cage.
4: Hey, and I'm the Disco Dork. In addition to our regularly scheduled programming, we have special guests, film festival and comic convention coverage, interview episodes, and more. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Podbean, YouTube, and other podcast platforms. Just search In the Mouth of Dorkness or It Modcast, where we are for the promotion and progression of geek culture.
2: We are the Popcorn My name is Dustin.
0: And my name is Jessica.
2: And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet.
0: Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us.
1: However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast.
0: Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com.
1: Again, that's
2: www.popcornpoops.com.
3: It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year, at least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
7: Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, WHMPodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the projection booth are talking about good party cinema related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We hate movies every Tuesday.
6: Joysticks was 1983, it came out. You had done Wacko in 82. Was this kind of uh, the, the second part of the Joe Don Baker trilogy?
2: Well, yes. I did not know Joe Don before Wacko. And uh, we met, and he agreed to do it, and he gave me a very, very favorable deal, less than what he normally would get for the uh, I think I had him for five weeks uh, on that, and he really only charged me for three weeks. So we became friends. And then when when I put together uh, joysticks, I didn't have any money, which is usual uh, for me, uh, as you know, Mike. I have a uh, autobiography called "On the Cheap: My Life in Low Budget Filmmaking," and uh, that's really what I had—low budget. Uh, Wacko actually was. Probably the highest budget that I ever had in any picture, and that was about seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. And the uh, joysticks was three hundred thousand dollars, so I couldn't afford to pay Joe Don his normal rate. But uh, when I when I was down in San Antonio, Texas, previewing Wacko. Uh, it was at a, a multiplex, I don't know, eight or ten theaters, whatever it was. I was down there for a test screening on a Thursday before our Friday opening. And I walked into the theater and I saw oh, a line of, I don't know, 10 or 12 teenage boys filing behind one another waiting for something. I thought, my God, it is over to the side of the uh, lobby of the theater. And I, I walked over there thinking maybe they're giving free popcorn away or something. And uh, it's the first time I saw, now this would have been in 1982 or late 81, probably late 81. It's the first time I saw a video arcade game. Before that, you know, I'd seen uh, Pong, I think they called it back and forth like a tennis match, bing bong, bing bong, bing bong. But this was a sophisticated uh, arcade and there was uh, one or two of them in the lobby and there were lines behind each of them. And I looked at it, and I thought, oh, my God, I can make a movie out of this, Teenage Kids in a Video Arcade. Well, uh, that weekend, uh, Wacko opened uh, very, very successfully in San Antonio, Texas. And uh, based on that opening, I was able to secure a distributor for it, a company out of uh, Salt Lake called Jensen Farley. And uh, they liked the picture very much. They put it out, and the picture did solid business. Not sensational, not great, but good, solid business. And when I got back to Los Angeles after the test screening, uh, Jennifer Harley contacted me based on that test screening just a couple of days after. When I got the idea to do the picture, and a month or two went by where the distributor of WACO uh, began the distribution, the theatrical distribution of Wacko, And we did solid business, not as much as we had hoped, but solid business. So when I was ready to, I felt at least ready to begin to proceed on joysticks, I got together with that distributor from Salt Lake, and he was in Los Angeles. I went over and met with him at his hotel, and I said to him uh, that I had my best idea since black shampoo. And uh, he laughed, of course, because black shampoo actually was a very good idea. But at any rate, I explained to him, and at that time, as I mentioned, the picture was called Video Madness. I explained to him, a teenage video arcade. I'd put a lot of tits and ass in it and comedy. And and uh, so he was very, very interested. So I knew that it was going to cost me $300,000. The way I made most of my movies, because budget was such an important factor, again, on the cheap, the way I made most of my movies was, I, I knew that I could raise or somehow acquire uh, X amount of dollars. And then I would write the script based on the fact that I had, in this case, $300,000 to make it. And I worked backwards on the script. Okay, 300000 how many days can I shoot? Uh, what can I spend on cast? What can I spend on locations, et cetera? So I said to the distributor from Salt Lake, that the picture was going to cost me $600,000, knowing that it was going to cost me 300000 So I said to him, I need $600,000. He said, well, Graydon, I can't give you any money up front. Uh, you have to make the picture. So I said to him, okay, that's fine, but let's make a deal when the picture's finished. So I made a deal with him that upon delivery of the picture, he'd pay me 200000 90 days later, he would pay me another 200000 and ninety days after that, another two hundred thousand, so they would be my six hundred thousand, so he said, "No, you know, I can do the two hundred thousand when the picture's finished, but I can't do ninety me six months and then another six months." So I agreed with that, so we agreed, and it looked like at the time that my three hundred thousand dollar picture that I would be bringing in six hundred thousand, so that was set. So anyhow, I got back to L.A. and I started thinking more and more about making a video game movie. And at that time, there were, well, not as many as there were a year or so later, but probably a dozen or so uh, video arcades in the L.A. area. Eventually, there were hundreds. So I went to a couple of them and uh, kind of saw what it was. And then there was an article in the L.A. Times about a woman, a mother, who was complaining that her son was spending too much time at the video arcade. I thought, wow, that could be the basis for my story. Parents not liking the fact that the kids are playing at the video arcade. So I developed a story along with a couple other guys. And, and we wrote the script. And I, I wanted to put, uh, I had the primary villain although it's a comedy, of course, but the primary villain was the father of one of the girls who was frequenting the arcade, and he didn't like that fact. So uh, I wanted to get a name to play that, but I didn't have the money that one would normally need to pay for a name actor. So I contacted Joe Don on a personal basis, bypassing his agent, which is something you're not really supposed to do. but. We had a relationship by then. So I called Joe Don and I I explained to him that I had this idea for a movie based in video arcades. At that time, I was calling it Video Madness, which was a takeoff on Reefer Madness. Uh, The parents were going way overboard on trying to suppress the video game playing of their kids. And in those days, of course, there was no home video. Uh, so if you wanted to play a video game, you went to a video arcade and they were springing up all across the country. At one time, I think there were about 18,000 different video arcades across the United States. So I explained all this to Joe Don and I said, Joe Don, I, you know, I really don't have the money to, to, to pay you what I paid you on Wacko, but, uh, let me get you the script and see if we can work something out. So I sent in the script. A couple of days later, he got back. He liked it very much. Thought it was very funny, and 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 wanted to participate. So uh, on Wacko, I gave him one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. His fee, his normal fee was fifty thousand a week, and he gave me two weeks free on Wacko. So I had him for five weeks. I only paid him for three. And uh, on Joysticks, uh, we made a deal where I would give him fifty thousand dollars and a percentage of the profits of the picture, and he would work for two weeks. It was a three-week schedule. So anyhow, he agreed, and, and I set about then putting together the rest of the pieces, the rest of the casting and locations. Originally, I thought that I could find an arcade that would allow me to film in it. But every time I talked to somebody, they were making so much money that they wouldn't allow me to close them down for a couple of weeks while I filmed in their arcade. Because uh, no matter what I paid them, offered them, because they said, well, I'll lose all my customers. All, all the kids will go to the arcade around the corner. So it became obvious that I had to build on a soundstage a set that would work for the video arcade. So I contacted a friend who had done uh, set work for me in the past. And, uh, together we, we figured out which, uh, sound stage to use. And, uh, there were a couple of things that I wanted to be part of. Number one, uh, I wanted the exterior of the arcade to be dressed and it would be the exterior of the sound stage so that I could film out in front and then move my cameras inside without having to make a, a, a company move, which means you, a company move is when you have to take all your equipment, throw it in trucks, and drive to some other location. So I thought, since I only had three weeks to make the movie, I thought, well, if I can do the vast majority of it in one location, the interior of the arcade, the exterior of the arcade, and then I have even used a back alley or back street, of the soundstage as a uh, city street that I could uh, film on. So as we were talking about how to make the set, uh, I realized, wait a minute here, if I have two contestants, because the script called for a contest between game players, if I have two contestants hunched over a video arcade, and then visually that's awful because... I don't have any way to really see what's going on. It's just a body uh, moving a joystick in front of a hunched over a small screen. This was in the days before large screens and so forth. So I said to my uh, art director, my set builder, let's create a platform that during the contests, a special platform, a big screen would come down. Uh, we could have two screens side by side, two players side by side, and I, I created the, the large joystick, which which was the basically about the size of a bowling ball uh, or soccer ball, and uh, uh, put the buttons on it and so forth, so that I could show the action of the game on these large screens, and I would be able then to show the audience reaction and and, and the players' reaction. So then I had the problem of okay, uh, that'll look good. Now, what video games can I use? Well, at the time, Pac Man, Super Pac actually, was really big. I mean, they they were on the cover of Time Magazine. That's how big video arcades were. And I thought, wow, I, I wonder what it would cost me to get the rights to use the Pac Man figure in my film. And I was very concerned about it because. I didn't have the money to pay what I thought they would be asking. So I contacted Midway up in uh, San Jose, which is where their offices were. uh, And I explained what I was doing and so forth and said I wanted to come up to talk to them about it. So a couple of their vice presidents agreed to meet me. I, I was in Los Angeles at the time. So I hopped on a plane, flew from L.A. to San Jose and went in to see Midway. So I, I explained to them, you know, a video arcade uh, contest and, and it's a teenage movie, so on and so forth. And then I said, now guys, I'm not going to charge you for putting your video games in my film. Let's, let's cross promote for one another. So I want to use Pac-Man, Super Pac, and, uh, you know, a couple of your other games. I think they had, uh, galaxy or some outer space game and three or four others that I would use and I said do you have one coming out that will be out in the next say six months when my film will be out and uh, I'll make that uh, not the final contest because that's got to be super pack but I'll make that one of the intermediary uh, contests shown on a big screen and so forth so they said oh we have one coming out called Satan's Hollow, And then that's going to be a big game. So I said, okay, I'll use that. So they agreed at no charge to me to allow me to use basically any of their games. So very happily, I got the hell out of there and got jumped on a plane back to L.A. And basically everything was set. I mean, I had to cast the rest of the picture. And uh, the set was being built. and, And there were some other locations, the house where Joe Don lives with his daughter and so forth. But, uh, and there was a scene kind of a, not a courtroom exactly. It's supposed to be a city council meeting. Uh, so I had to find the location for that. And, and, and basically I, I was set, as I said, I did the casting and, uh, we made the movie. Then the movie was finished and we started editing. This was in the summer of 1982. Uh, I would say September. I guess that's not summer. Maybe it is September, October of 82. And for reasons uh, of investment, I had to screen the picture during the calendar year 1982. So we only had a couple of months in post-production. So uh, I had a guy working for me at the time, very, very talented fellow named Curtis Birch, who helped me uh, immensely with the script. In fact, he got one of the screenwriter credits on the script. Uh, uh, which he was very much entitled to. And he was also my editor. But because of our time factor, we added another editor, a fellow friend of uh, Kurt's named uh, uh, Larry Bach. So Larry and Curtis uh, were editing the film. I was, of course, there every day uh, throwing my two cents in. So I finished the picture. I had to have a screening. Uh, We set up a screening in Las Vegas. I fly to Las Vegas and the distributor comes now from Salt Lake. First time he had seen the picture. As I said, I was calling it video madness. But I didn't really like that title. And I came up with another title, Joystick. And I remember saying to my two editors, Kurt and uh, Larry Bach, uh, what do you think of the title, Joystick? Well, naturally they both laughed. They said, Well, you're gonna it's gonna create some interest and the the, the kids that we were making the movie for, uh, we'll all understand what you're talking about. So I still wasn't sure, but that day I walked across the street from our editing room to a place where we ate lunch, and there was a kid, I don't know, 10, 12, something like that, waiting at a bus depot. So I said to the kid, hey, kid, if I say the word joystick to you, what do you think? And he said, yeah, I know what you want me to say. Uh, Get up here. So I thought wow that's a great reaction so the distributor came in town a week or so later I showed him 10 minutes of the film on a movieola, uh, which in those days that's how you had to do it because this was before digital before before computers to edit and so forth and I said to him I want to change the title he said oh yeah what I want to call it joystick he said oh my god we can't do that every parent a country will Force the kids not to see the movie. I said, we should be so lucky because if the parents protest, then the kids are all going to want to go see it. He said, uh, I don't know. What about joysticks? And he had added an S to the title at the end. And I thought, what the hell is the difference? Joystick, joysticks. I said, that's fine. So we agreed to call it joysticks. So picture's finished. We have the screening in Las Vegas. And the distributor says, well, it's not as good as WACO. And I said, uh, no kidding. The wacko is twice the budget and twice the shooting schedule. So he said, we're going to test it in the next month or so in El Paso, Texas. I said, okay. So a month or two later, we opened in El Paso, Texas on a Friday. Saturday morning, the distributor calls me and says, Graydon, I hope you're sitting down because we have a huge hit on our hand. It was the largest opening of any picture we've ever had. He said, and I've checked with the theaters. There was, I think, three theaters in in El Paso. I've checked with the theaters, and they say that the audience is responding good, and it looks like this was Saturday morning. He was talking about Friday's opening. He said, it looks like we'll have a good Saturday. I'll call you tomorrow Sunday. So he calls me Sunday morning. He said, we did more business Saturday than we did on Friday, almost double. It's a huge, huge opening. We're going to make a fortune. I said, Great, great. So uh we we played for like three or four weeks in El Paso doing really for, for this independent distributor, record business. So he decided to get the picture out in the market as quickly as he can and he made in those days it was it was it was a fairly large commitment, six hundred theaters, mostly in the southeast. And again it was a couple of months later when we played those six hundred theaters in the southeast and on saturday i don't know what kind of deal you have with your investors but we're going to end up owing you somewhere north of a million probably closer to two million dollars so i think i'm talking to a millionaire well (laughs) and the reviews on the picture were quite i mean some people were offended of course because there's a lot in the picture to offend but they many of them thought it was amusing and entertaining and And nicely done and so forth. So the picture played there in the Southeast market for three or four weeks. And then he began to move the uh, prints. This was again in the days before digital distribution. And the prints were a little over a thousand dollars a print. So he had six hundred thousand dollars on the table in prints alone, plus advertising, probably another three or four hundred thousand. But the picture. Was doing exceptional business. And uh, I began to think, wow, you know, i in Hollywood for 14 years and joysticks was my 10th picture. And finally, it, it appeared like I really had a hit. And when you have a hit picture, a couple of things happen. One, you can make a lot of money, which is very nice. Two, even more importantly, you can continue to make movies because suddenly, The powers that be say, oh, Braden Clark has this hit joysticks. They don't care if the picture's good or bad, or most of them don't even see it. They just look at the box office result. And somehow they think, well, he has the Midas touch. He knows what he's doing. So let's finance his next picture. So the months go by, and it's now six months after I had delivered the picture to the distributor. And, uh, at that time he owed me, well, he owed me the 200,000 guaranteed payment that was due in six months, but he also owed me from the distribution of the picture, probably close to a million dollars. But I knew that it takes a long time for the theaters to pay the distributor and then for the distributor to pay the producer. But I had the 200,000 that was due me. So I called the guy and I said, uh, I called him on like a Wednesday and the 200,000 was due the following Monday. And I said to him, listen, I'm about to buy some real estate that I really can't afford, but I want to make certain that the 200,000 will be timely. No problem, Graydon. No problem at all. You'll have it on Monday. I'll wire it to your account. And Monday comes, no money. I thought, oh shit, I've had distributor problems in the past with other films where distributors ripped me off. But uh there was so much money being made by the picture I I really felt secure because uh you know the picture picture ended up doing over six million dollars. And basically I would have had, well, at least a third of that two million. So anyhow, time for the two hundred thousand dollar payment and it didn't come. So naturally I called <laughs> Salt Lake And asked for the president of the company. Well, no, he wasn't there. He was on an airplane heading to New York. Next day, I finally reached him in New York. I said, I thought you told me there'd be no problem with that 200 grand you owe me. Well, the distributor, I mean, excuse me, the exhibitors are not paying me on time and we're having a little cash flow problem. Well, I knew that the chances of me getting the money that were fast becoming slimmer and slimmer. So, uh, long story short, the distributor filed bankruptcy about maybe a month or month and a half later. And uh, there was a creditor's meeting in New York City. And I went there because he owed me a lot of money. And I got there and there were laboratories, Canadian laboratories and advertising agencies and shipping companies. And everybody was there around a big table at his New York attorney's office <clears throat> where he said, look, we're filing bankruptcy. Sorry guys, you know, and everybody around the table were owed. I was probably the biggest creditor, actually, but maybe, maybe some laboratories were equivalent or slightly more than what he owed me. Uh, cause there was various advertising agencies which he owed considerable to, but they were split up into various territories. So I thought, oh Christ, here, you know, I'm not going to collect my money after 14 years of fighting these wars. So I went to him. And I got him to agree to return the rights to Joysticks to me. I tried to get him to also return the rights to Wacko because he wasn't paying me on Wacko either. But the bankruptcy laws are very complex, and I won't bore the listening audience with how it works. But but basically, the people who are owed money get screwed. The gov- any money that comes in, the government has first claim on. Then second claim is to the attorneys, which would be hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then next claim would be the banks. God knows how much he owed the banks. And then anything left over would go to the creditors. So I got the rights to joysticks back. It took about a month for the, for my attorney and their attorney and all these expensive attorneys, uh, to, get the paperwork done so that I legitimately had the rights to joysticks. So then I called Vestron, and I knew John Peisinger at that time, the head of Vestron. They had just finished uh, uh, Dirty Dancing and were rolling high. I mean, they they were flush with funds. Uh, So I called him, and he knew me, so he took my call. And I said to him, I'd like to sell joysticks to you for home video. In those days, it was VHS. And he said, great, would be happy to take joysticks, but we already own it. I said, what do you mean you already own it? He said, yeah, a couple of months ago, the distributor from Salt Lake uh, sold it to us for $100,000, a wholesale price, because we could have easily given you two or $300,000 for it. So the son of a bitch in Salt Lake wholesaled both of my films joysticks and wacko to vestron at bargain basement if that's a word that people still understand prices uh before i could do anything about it so vestron said listen if 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 there's additional money due obviously we will pay it to you uh and eventually the picture did so well on video home video that i did receive some additional monies. nothing like the Million plus that was due me. The the distributor even sold some foreign territories that I didn't know about, one of which being Australia, where Wacko was a huge hit in Australia. I mean, the kids would walk down the hallways of their school dressed in the uh, wardrobe and sing the songs of in the film and so forth, kind of like Rocky Horror Picture Show.
6: Well, you talked a little bit about Curtis Birch. Can you tell me a bit more about Al Gomez and Mickey Epps, who are the other people listed as writers?
2: Yeah, uh, Al and Mickey were actors that I had used in High Riders. This was the first time I used them, which was uh, four or five films prior to Joysticks. And they were also actors in Angel's Brigade, and uh, I used them when I could smaller parts. They also helped on the crew with the... Uh, minor stuff and they were young uh, eager fellows uh, nice guys who would often stop by my office well when I got back from San Antonio and I had the idea for joysticks they happened to come in the office and they said so Graydon what what are you doing next about 14 years earlier I had said the same thing to Al Adamson after I'd worked on the first picture I ever worked on for Al. And it was, it's a naive question because it assumes that it's very easy to get the next project on. And I remember thinking, Christ, that's the same thing I said to Al Adamson after he, after I'd worked as really his gopher on a film. Uh, I said, so Al, what's next? And he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, I don't know what's next, you know, but in this case, they said, what's next? And I said, well, I'm, gonna do a picture about video arcades and they said well oh, let us write it let us write it and i said well have you ever written anything no, no. i said well guys and they said look look we'll write it for free uh and if you use it give us a thousand bucks or something and uh give us a screen credit because that would mean a lot to us and i said well curtis birch happened to be out of town his family was in texas and he was visiting them So I said, okay, look, Kurt's going to be back in a couple of weeks. He and I are going to write the script. But if in these two weeks, you guys want to take a shot at this, you know, don't feel disappointed now if I, if I don't use it or use you or anything. But if you want to take the opportunity to try it, go ahead. So I outlined to them my story idea of, uh, the father, the characters, uh, uh, in the video arcade, uh, King Vidiot, and Patsy, the daughter of Jodan Baker's character, and the suave, good-looking guy, and the uh, slob, and so forth. So I kind of outlined all those that I'd been thinking about. So they went away, and they wrote, came back 10 days or two weeks later, with a script. There wasn't much in it, really, that I could use. I mean, they, they were good guys, intelligent guys. I used them on the, on, on the picture and used them on a couple of other pictures after that, but not as writers. So I said to them, "Look, guys, Kurt and I are really going to write it. Uh, we're not going to use really any of your stuff." They said, "Oh, can you know, can you give us the credit on it?" I said, "Sure. If it helps you in your career, I'll give you screen credit." So it really was a a, a lessening of Curtis Birch's work as a screenwriter, and because I didn't want to have too many writers' name on it, I did not take any writer credit at all. But uh, basically, they had very, very little to do with the finished script. Where did you
6: find uh, Jim Greenleaf?
2: And um, God,
6: I I love these guys' names. Jim
2: Greenleaf and Leaf Green. Well, uh, the way casting worked for me is I had Curtis Birch see people for each role, and he would see. You know, we, we, we we contacted all the agents and said. You know, gave them a list of the characters and a little breakdown of what they were and so forth. And then they would submit uh talent. And he would see, I don't know, 10, 12 different actors for each role. And meanwhile, I was busy preparing the picture. So I would have him bring to me as, excuse me, as callbacks, uh, three, sometimes four different actors that I would try to make a final decision on. So that's what happened. Uh, he saw these people, and uh, uh, now Scott McGinnis is the exception to that because Scott was in Wackham. So when we were writing the script, we thought, gee, Scott would be great if he's available. So the other parts, the Jim Greenleaf and Leaf Green, uh, were, were brought in with two or three other guys uh, or gals for each role, and then I made final decisions
6: on them obviously Joe Don Baker has a lot of credits but the other person who seemed like the most seasoned actor
2: was John Grise yes, uh, John uh, John's father was a very famous uh, director uh, Tom Grise who had passed away very early I think really in his late 40s early 50s so John was a a person who had a lot of uh, industry experience and uh, he came in very talented fellow, gave a great reading, and was one of the easier roles for me to say, yeah, let's go with that guy.
6: He is so manic in that role. How, how was he to work with on uns- You know, he
2: was very good. Jonathan is nothing like that. He's a very cultured, calm, polite, intelligent, uh, at that time, young man. I guess we were all younger. <laughs> but I remember during the scene where he comes into Joe Don's house and he walks through the window. Uh, I said to him, listen, John, let's go absolutely crazy with this. Just do anything that comes to your mind. Don't censor yourself. Because after all, you are King Vidiot, as in idiot. So just go with it and we'll see what happens. So uh, things are not really ad-libbed on a movie set. Because the cameraman has to know where the actor is going to be. The sound man has to know where uh, he's going to be speaking and so forth. But where you can really create something it is in the rehearsal for the scene. So John comes through the window and Jodan reacts and dialogue. And I said, uh, John, why don't you not sit on the couch next to him, but sit on the arm of the couch or the chair? And once you see that there was a plant there, a green plant of some sort. I said, why don't you go over and start chewing on that plant? So he was willing to do anything and try anything. At one point he drops to his back and starts shivering. And at that point there was an ad-lib line by Joe Don Baker. But see he was sitting in his chair and the mic was right there and the camera was there. So so an ad lib line can sometimes be used, and in this case it could. And that's when Joe Don said, If you're dying, I'm not giving you mouth to mouth. What was Joe and Don like on set? Joe Don, this is the second picture I worked with, Joe Don, and then right after this picture took me a couple of years after the picture to recover from the loss of all the money. But a couple of years after this, I made a picture in Malta with Joe Don called Final Justice. So all in all, we did three pictures together, and he was terrific. I mean, uh, he was a great guy, a good friend. We would go to Laker games together and and, uh, just a a wonderful all-around purpose, as well as everybody realizes what a great actor he is. And he's very inventive and and willing to work with young people who are not nearly as experienced as him. Just an all-around good, good guy. Now, this was one of several films that you made with your wife, Jacqueline Cole. How was it directing her? Well, Jackie and I, by this time, we'd been together, oh, my God, I don't know. This was, what, 82? And we got together in uh, 1968, so you do the math, six, seven, eight years, whatever it is. Maybe longer than that. <laughs> Fourteen, my God. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. So, uh, and we had had a child who was in the movie, my younger, older son, Trevor, firstborn, who is the little baby that's in the movie. Uh, and, and we had worked together on four or five films. She was wonderful to work with, uh, uh, always extremely concerned about her performance. And uh, would be maybe one of the most prepared actors I've ever worked with. She would know her lines and everybody else's lines and she would have gone over it a thousand times. And between setups, she would go over by herself and go over them again and again and again and again. So she was always a pleasure to work with.
6: Now, this was one of several films that you made with Nicholas Joseph von Sternberg. What was your working relationship like with him?
2: Well, Nick von Sternberg, uh, the first picture he shot for me was Wacker. And then Joysticks was the second. And then I continued to use him. Literally, uh, I've done 20 pictures. And uh, this, as I said, was the 10th. And every time he was available, I used Nick von Sternberg. He was very quick, very inventive. Realized that if I told him Nick we have to shoot this in three weeks he knew what that meant obviously he would want three weeks in a day as would I we both would want six weeks or eight weeks because time is the real killer on a movie set. when you have limited budget and mine were always limited I didn't have a studio I could go back to and say well listen I need a little more money I'm running over this was basically my money and I had x amount and didn't have any any way to get more money so if i told nick we had to shoot it in three weeks he knew that it would be shot in three weeks so we both had to make compromises as to time and uh, he was he was wonderful wonderful to work with a very pleasant fellow great demeanor on the set and extremely extremely talented
6: do I remember right that when this opened, it opened so big that you made um,
2: Entertainment yes. Tonight? Yes. Uh, Mary Hart was uh, on it in those days as the host. And they always listed on Monday the top grossing pictures for the week weekend. And Joysticks was the number one picture in the country. And she said, I don't understand how a little picture nobody ever heard of became the top grossing picture. And I knew how, because number one, it was a teen comedy. Number two, it was about video arcades, and it had TNA in it, and it was fun, and who wouldn't want to go see that? Because, as I say, by then, there were thousands and thousands of video arcades across the United States. The soundtrack for
6: the movie is so fantastic, especially that opening song. Can you tell me a little bit about the
2: making of the music for it? My music in those days, was handled by a fellow by the name of John Caper. You may know the name Branislav Caper, who was a very famous uh, composer in the, well, 40s primarily, but 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, John was his son, and he did huge, huge films. What John would do is, uh, and I hired him, I guess this was my third picture with him, Uh, I would hire John for a flat fee and he would then put together the music soundtrack for me. He would go out and find the writers, the composers, the arrangers, the musicians, the singers. If there was a song involved, which in this case there was, Uh, he would handle all that. Then he would bring to me temp tracks and say, what do you think? Well, to be honest with you, I think I know a little bit about how films are made. But if there's one department, and people could argue there are many, that I know very little about, that is music. If you said to me, do you think we should add horns or strings, I wouldn't have any idea how to answer that. But I did know where I wanted music in a picture. So we would sit at a movie and go over the picture frame by frame, saying, okay, we want music here. Usually it was obvious what kind of music. I mean, you know. Uh Especially in a picture like joysticks, it's basically all fun music, but uh, and then there were scenes where no, we don't want music here, and so on and so forth so So he would go and he would bring back to me a temp track and say, "What do you think?" and nine times out of ten, I would say, "Jeez, that's terrific Now, when they brought the opening song for joysticks, I was thrilled beyond words because it's such a terrific song, and it works so well in the picture. And, and I had told him, I said, look, I'm going to have a girl at a video arcade game playing, but I'm not going to show you the footage. I'm going to cut the footage to your song so that it was cut on the beat of the song. So, uh, he, he, uh, brought us that song because the, the, the rest of the picture, you show him the film and then he writes the music to the film. In the case of the opening song, we cut the picture to his song it was a terrific terrific song and uh, still holds up was there ever a soundtrack for the film you know it all got involved with the bankruptcy of the distributor uh i have seen online that there are soundtracks out there but i know very little about them i I don't want to say that they're bootlegged because maybe they made deals with the distributor that I didn't know about. But I had no involvement with them. You talked about
6: Vestron having the rights for the film. Did you ever get them back? What's kind of the the status of the film now?
2: Well, uh, yes, I did get the rights when Vestron (laughs) eventually filed bankruptcy. The, the, The rights to the film are now owned by a company called Multicom TV. And they own world rights, excluding whatever the other distributor had sold, which none of us really are positive what that is. Because (laughs) when a company like that Salt Lake company goes bankrupt, there's basically nothing left. It's not like a huge international company that goes under because then, you know, you have attorneys and you have all the other bullshit that, uh, uh, it's, it's kind of stays alive for years. In this instance, when the bankruptcy was filed in a matter of months, everything just kind of disappeared into the woodwork. As far as I remember, there is a Blu-ray of joysticks out yes. there. And that, that was released by Multicom, which did acquire those rights from me and or Vestra. Or, or whatever was remaining to Vestron. So this is 100% legit.
6: So if I'm buying this, like, if I'm buying a copy of, of Joysticks
2: on Blu-ray, are you getting a cut? No, I'm not. Uh, I sold my rights to all of my films. Oh, I'm going to guess two or three years ago, maybe more, uh, to Multicom. They're a very large. They have... I would say thousands, but it might be a little bit less than a thousand. They have about a thousand uh, or more titles that they own and distribute throughout the world, Joysticks being one of them. And of my other films, High Riders and Black Shampoo and so forth. Did Wacko ever come out on Blu-ray? No, I he- hesitate slightly because no, not that I'm aware of. And I think I would be aware of it had it come out.
6: When these movies are coming out, are they going to you for extras? Are they going to you for audio
2: commentary? Yes. Uh, they, they, they—you know—want a director's comments. I'm always happy to do it as long as I receive a stipend of some sort. And What are you up to these days? Well, you know, I, I really haven't uh, done any any actual work on a film for a dozen years or so. Uh, don't think that I will. I'm. Pretty much retired, but I do, you know, stay online. You can go to GraydonClark.com and I sell some DVDs there that I have acquired from Multicom or wherever. And of course I have my book. Uh, it took me two years to write the book and that's available, uh, on my website also. So, uh, that keeps me pretty busy, but basically filmmaking is a young person's game. Today it's so different than when I did it. When I did it, all of my films, in fact, were shot on film. There was no digital. Uh, and film was very expensive and cameras weighed a thousand pounds. Well, not a thousand, but were very, very heavy. Uh, and you had to shoot film and then you had to take it to a lab for processing and then the lab had to make prints and then you edited it on a Moviola. All of that now is changed and you can take a cell phone Go out and shoot a movie, and edit it digitally on the phone or a computer. If it works, you can find some distribution and make some money from it.
6: Well, Graydon Clark, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful talking
2: with you. My pleasure, Mike. I consider you a friend, and anytime you need anything, don't hesitate to give me an honor. Mm-hmm.
6: up the son of tom grise were you just destined to work in the entertainment industry
7: i certainly didn't think so and i don't think he thought so i mean when i was a kid i had i had absolutely no interest in in it whatsoever you know that was my father's job and you know yeah it's cool i thought if anything i would probably want to be a director because i loved the way that he had the respect and command on the set and the idea of being, getting to be really creative on, you know, with a bunch of people working towards this common goal was always really cool to me. You know, that, you know, and when I was like, I don't know, 11 years old, I got a Super 8 movie camera, you know, and, and I would get all my friends together and we'd make little movies, you know. And so, I mean, that was really, really cool. I mean, uh, and so I think if ever any, in any direction in the business, it would have been, immediately right on his heels doing what he did he loved actors but but like many many directors he hated them too and so when it came to disparaging actors sometimes sitting around the dinner table he didn't always paint such a colorful picture i mean there was a lot of times that my father would just be like he was a blue collar worker you know the way he worked even though he was you know well educated he went to georgetown he was you know he certainly wasn't un, underprivileged as a kid. When my grandmother remarried, when my father was very, very young. uh, She married a good guy who was pretty successful, you know, but at the same time, my father did get a job in the steel mills when he was young. And I think that was, I'm just, te- sorry, I'm testing. <laughs> I'm cooking the birds. food. I'm just testing it right now to make sure it's ready. I mean, he worked in a steel mill and because of the military, he was, a, he was a Marine. And I think there was, um, Always that that sense of of a, of a, of a blue collar mentality. Like we're all here working together. He just had no tolerance for donnas. He had none. So when when he would rail about actors, you know, when I was a kid, that that kind of you know I, that informed me. I don't want to be an actor. That's the way my dad thinks of actors. I never thought of, of it from that standpoint. Most certainly not. No. Only possibly as a director. Because I thought that was really, really cool. You know, I, I never, I wanted to be a forest ranger, you know, until a friend of mine who graduated a year before me from high school ended up going to the forestry school. And then he, she got put in a public park as a forestry guy, like a, not like a, not like Yosemite, you know, but like a, a frigging inner city public park. You know, because those guys are also the Parks and Recreation. They're the same guys as they are in the forestry. And I was like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm working in a park here, you know. I was like, no, that, that's, that, that's definitely not my idea of what I want to do. So I kind of changed my plan.
6: So how did you end up becoming an actor then, if you, this is something that you thought your your dad would hate?
7: When I was very young, I did that film, Will Penny. You know, my father directed a movie called Will Penny. And the way that happened is, you know, it's been told many times before. But I truly, I knocked my tooth out and he was taking me to the dentist. We had just moved out from New York City and we were living in a beach house. And he did not want to take me all the way back. It was a typical L.A. situation. I'm not driving all the way back out there to drop him off. If he's going to the dentist with me he's going to the studio with me and that's all there is to it. And that's how it was. And so I went to the studio with him and you know, while he he was racing to finish a draft and so I was kind of interrupting him. And he just said, look, you got to go out and make yourself busy, go do something, but just stay out of trouble. And, and I, as I was leaving, the producers were coming in and they, they basically said, Hey, are you here with Tommy? And you know, that whole thing. And they, they figured out that I was his son, but they brought me into their office and they started, you know, chatting me up and, you know, next thing you know, they convinced him to screen test me, and he was like, "No, man, just, he's just—he's not an actor. He—he's—he's he's an idiot." <laughs> you know, that's what I remember. So that's my no—that's my son. He's—he's—he's he's, he's not an actor, but somehow I don't know what happened. But I, you know, I um, I screen tested against all these other kids, and I and I got the job, and and so that was my taste of. I spent you know fifteen weeks. Uh, working on this film, you know, 10 of, 10 of them up in Bishop, California, and, and it was amazing. And, but at the same time, it was my first real, I, you know, even inkling of what it would be like to, you know, looking at it from the perspective of an actor, because all of a sudden there were lines to learn, and Joan Hackett kind of took me under her wing and became my, my, basically off my mother, you know, she, she, She watched out for me because she knew that if if I wasn't ready, then everybody was going to suffer. And she was smart enough to to take the time as well as develop a relationship with me because we're supposed to be mother and son. She also uh, knew that it was going to be ultimately better for everybody involved on the show, you know. And it turned out to be an amazing experience. And so. I got a lot of offers after that. I got offered um, quite a, a few big movies: The Cowboys with John Wayne, The Reavers with Steve McQueen, and I turned everything down. My parents would come and ask me, "Well, do you want to do this?" I mean, they knew that they didn't really want me to because they didn't—they they didn't want to, you know—become. My mother didn't want to become a stage mother, and my, you know, I had three older brothers. I mean, she couldn't leave them, you know. But they still would give me the respect of ask, asking me. And I would say no, you know, because my older brothers were, had already picked on me enough. They're like, you're an actor, you know, I mean, back then kids were, were not so nice, you know, and, and the idea of being an actor was not, not too far off from being a dancer. You know what I mean? (laughs) So that's how they, they basically regarded me that way. And so the last thing I wanted to do was to be, first off, separated from my brother's I wanted to be, you know, for all of us to be together. And I didn't want to have it be in in any way, you know, um, I just didn't want to be special. I didn't want to be treated special. I just wanted to be like everybody else. You know, that said, there was enough underneath the skin there that it was like, okay, I've done it now. And then when I was going to college and I was 19, my father was directing Helter Skelter. And he said, you know, there is a part of this if you want to read for it, if you're thinking about it. And I had kind of dabbled in going to a few classes at night. Just the truth is I was dating a girl who, who had become a model and I'd visited a couple sets while she was working as as a, in a, in commercials, you know, and I thought, and I, I should probably do this. There's money in this. You know, what I mean, it was totally, there was no like, oh, I need to express myself. You know, it was purely just a, a, a guy who, who wanted to find an easy way. Make a book. <laughs> totally. So then when my father finally said, Do you think you'd want to read? I said, I'll read. I'll, you know, I'll read. I hadn't done anything in 10 years, you know, finally, had uh, a cocktail party, watching his friends and people were there and, you know, being the kind of person he was, he, he was very smart and, and he, he knows the difference from a nine year old kid to a 19 year old young man. That you know, maybe I was footloose and pretty easy doing Will Penny. And comfortable, I developed a certain comfort in, in playing the part. But as you get older, you could easily lose that. Kids have a kind of an easy way. And he wanted to see that I could actually do it. So he he dropped the script on me right at the party and said, go in the other room and learn your lines. You're going to do it. And I said, where am I going to do it? When? Because you're going to do it here. So there's all these, you know, this afternoon party with all these people standing around with their cocktail glasses and, you know, God knows what, you know. And I stepped in and I read for the part, and he said, "Okay, I'm going to tell you three things. One, you got the job. Two, you're going to get your SAG card out of this. And I don't. And three, I don't want you to ever, ever ask me for a job. That's the way it goes. You, you, you know, you're on your own in this. You can do it, but you're on your own. I'm not going to be your fallback. And that was really, really important for me to hear." you know, because I, I, I knew that I wouldn't do that anyway. I I wouldn't rely on him. I didn't want to, I had, I had, you know, I was so competitive and like a, you know, in, in sports and stuff. I was like, I would never, I would never want to be like some guy who was just hanging on his pops coat strings, you know? And then he died like a year and a half later. So, you know, it was kind of, he set me on my path before he passed away and that was it. You know, I was in New York studying acting and, uh, when he passed away, and then and then that was kind of like you know I was on my own. Uh, you know somebody I remember I didn't wake. Somebody pulled me aside, said which one? You know, pulled all the boys aside, the the four brothers, and said which one is the actor? And I raised my hand. He goes, I'm "Gonna be fucking hard on you, my friend." And I said, "Why?" And he said, "Because nobody remembers anybody when they're gone. They only care about people. You know, if you, you if you think you're gonna get help because your dad's your dad." Your dad's gone, so you're on your own. And I kind of was like, I, I felt like his perspective on the world was a little bit like he thought I would be relying on my father to, to do whatever it is I was planning to do. But I was already on a different path, you know. I was so deeply entrenched in studying in New York and wanting to be the next Robert De Niro. <laughs> I have to say, Helter Skelter,
6: I mean, that movie freaked the heck out of me when I saw it. Oh, yeah. It,
7: I mean, Rails Back just still gives me chills. He just nailed it. He, he really did nail it. And, and the interesting thing is, is he came out and read for the part, he was living in New York and studying with Ely Kazan. He came and read for the part, and they, gave, they offered it to him, and he turned it down and went back to New York. And he was back in his class, and he was, you know— talking to Ely Kazan after class and said, yeah, I just turned this movie down and helped the Skelter, you know. And Kazan knew the book, you know. He said, really? You turned it down? She said, yeah, you know. I, just, I don't want to do whatever. I don't want to do TV or whatever it was he said. And Kazan said, well, okay, who's directing it? And he said, Tom Gries." And he said, get on the phone and take that job. <laughs> Which I, I always took as a really, really lovely compliment from my dad. Yeah, And that's how Rails Back ended up doing the movie and he was so good. What was it
6: like being directed by your own dad?
7: It's funny. I remember so much of it so clearly, you know. Um, especially that, because it was kind of reminding me of when we were when I was much younger doing Will Penny and even though it was only ten years back when you're that old, ten years seems like a lifetime and so there was something really nice and comforting about him. he was very easy going, you know, he was such an easy going person when it came to that stuff. And you know, it was a, it set me on a good path as far as being, being anything creative and, and, and understanding that that process has its own. And my father was by no means like, I would never consider my dad to be like an artsy, artsy guy, but he was, he was, um, he was really invested in the narrative. And he was, in that sense, I think my father was a better writer than he was anything. He was an amazing writer, and and uh, and I think taken too soon, he would have really, I think, flourished as a writer in his life had he not died at 54. But, um, you know, it was great. It was it was lovely. And I remember at one point he, he came to me and he, he whispered something in my ear, which I was like, I had only done a summer with Stella Adler. She came out to L.A., and I did summer with her before I went back to New York. This was, you know, obviously just before I took off. And he leaned over, and he said, Maybe he whispered in my ear. He was, you think maybe you could cry a little bit here. And I remember, you know, Stella railing against the idea of result acting, You know, it's supposed was to just, you know, let the let it take you to that place. And you know, obviously, sometimes a, a writer is going to say, you know, he breaks down the well, way you got to break down. But it didn't say it in the in the scene, you know. And so I I just was like. Okay, I'll try that. <laughs> but I was that was uncomfortable. That was that was like the only only uncomfortable moment. And I just and and uh, and I didn't, of course. And later on, he said you did the right thing because it's better to to want to but not do it because you're scared rather than want to do it, which I thought was always a great. So you know, let let the audience feel the, the the fear through you as opposed to letting them watch you. Emote, you know, was a really important. Big lesson.
6: I I hope it's not an indelicate question, but I had a question for you about Krista Helm.
7: Horrible, horrible experience, you know, in that sense. To figure out after the fact what I had actually audibly witnessed, but not visually witnessed. It was um, some of the scariest noises I've I've ever heard in my life, ever. Like scarier than any. Horror movie, anything. Enough to when I jumped out of my bed hearing it, I, I had the, you know, the when you get just goosebumps head to toe and you cannot control them, it, it, it was as if instinctively I knew something was. At first I thought it was truly like a, you know, like a raccoon and a cat having a fight or something, like, or a baby car. It just had this weird, weird, horrible, horrible sound. Yeah. You know, it's terrible. Just and the fact that and and the fact that she knew my brother and knew other friends of mine, but particularly people that played music. You know, she was very much into the music scene, and uh, and so yeah, uh, it was. I was awesome. But beyond that, I I, I'd only met her once, but I didn't put I didn't put two and two together that the the person. That I until obviously much much later, you know even hearing her name when I heard that the, this girl had been murdered and that I had you know when I discovered you know after the police came to the house and asked if we'd hear, heard anything or seen anything that night and I I it it, had, it was just so in the middle of, I mean literally three in the morning and I was in a dead sleep and it woke me out of a dead sleep so much so that. Uh, it was right after my father died and I had his pistol and it was under my pillow. And I remember I actually walked outside and looked down the block with the gun in my hand. The, the police had said, when I finally, they'd left, they'd knocked on the door basically and asked us if we'd heard anything. And then, you know, I, it was one of those things where you kind of forget that you'd heard it. But then the minute he walked out, I remembered that night and it was like it was a dream, you know. And I ran out and I said, well, I, I did, I did hear something. And I came out here, it freaked me out. I, I you know, it was like, I, I, it, it, I, I'd forgotten. It was like, it was truly like a nightmare. And he said, where did you walk out to? And I pointed down the sidewalk and he said, did you go into the street? And I said, no, I just went down the sidewalk. He said, you've gone to the street. You'd have seen her. She was laying in the street. So literally I was three steps away from discovering her, you know, but she was, you know, but but I would have to look down the block because it was, it was a good. I was going to say a good sixty yards away from my house. You know, maybe fifty yards. But I, you know, I would have seen somebody slumped in the road there. You know, probably. Knowing me, I'd definitely down there. Yeah.
6: You know. Well, and at three o'clock in the morning, who knows what the lights would have been like?
7: Well, you know, the the street lights are. It's lit enough. I mean, it's lit enough. Yeah. It's. That whole thing's terrible. I, I, I truly think that, you know, it's funny. M- m- a guy that used to play keyboards in my brother's band and then played in my band later, he and I talked at length about it. And especially when they had called me, cause they had called him to, to, to talk about it on, on, on the whatever it was, you know, I don't even know if he ended up speaking to them, but, but he was actually interrogated because he had been, you know, sleeping with her at the time. He did, he did tell me one really, really horrible story that, uh, when he was with her one night. And he was, you know, he was, back then in the seventies, you know, musicians just kind of couch surfed. They they never really had a place. Certainly my brother's band, they, they were all great. They were working with amazing people, but none of them had a place to live. I think maybe one of them did. He was staying at this guy's house and, uh, he would have Krista over. Uh, he looked out into the backyard and there was a the face of another girl that he had been seeing it you know who was obsessed with him named wendy villa never forget her name she was looking through the window she was she's stalking so he'd always thought that that she she might have been the one to do it because um because uh of the nature of the you know multiple stab wounds usually is a is like a jealous rage you know it's not a, um, you know, like a, a hitman hit or something. And apparently she knew and had been around a lot of people and seen a lot of crazy stuff. But, you know, back then there was there was a real underbelly for Los Angeles that was dark and kind of wild. And, and I'm sure, you know, she probably saw things that she wasn't supposed to, I'm sure.
6: That must have been a really tough time of your life to undergo that and to have your dad passing away like, four weeks earlier. That's... Yeah.
7: Yeah. It was all so crazy at that time. It was a fog. And, and then the three of us, my th- three of the four boys all living in one house together. And, uh, you know, everybody being in such a crazy flux in their life. And my older, my old, the oldest of the boys that was living in the house was, he was the one who knew her really well. And he, he was in the band and, and he was struggling to make it. And it was, it was rife with all kinds of problems, you know, drugs and craziness. It was crazy. Just crazy. It was, it was madcap so much so that I had to literally just, I think I was there six months and I just jumped on a plane and went back to New York and went back to studying and tried to get my life grounded again because it was crazy. This is crazy.
6: If you're, you're looking back, I know for sure you had a, a big role in swap mate. Would uh, you say that that was your
7: first lead? No. I mean, I, I let me see. Was it? Yeah, probably was. I was horrible in that film, and I was completely over my head. I was lost. I didn't. I didn't even have a a, a, a you know a, an applicable technique to employ. I mean, I just didn't know what I was doing when I was doing that film, and um, I was not disciplined. Uh, and I could tell that the, the producer Steve Kranz, was deeply, deeply sorry that he'd hired me. And and I think that it was a, it was a, it was a, um, it was a something that I kind of looked at as, I I kind of judged the film rather than looking at it as an opportunity for me to, to really get my head behind it and get really into it and work really hard and, and try things and turn out a performance. I just, but I, I didn't really know what I was doing and, and it's, it's a pity because I, I was, I was outmatched and outgunned. All those other young actors that I was working with were, were far and away better and more devoted and more, um, more, uh, conscientious. I don't know. I just kind of, I, I sometimes look back on that one and go, how did I allow myself to just not, not, just to not be prepared? You know, and I really wasn't. It was, it was terrible, but it was a great, you know, it was an expensive, I'm not going to say a great, but it was an expensive lesson. It was a really expensive lesson, and it was one that basically informed joysticks later. That where I, I felt like I, I devoted myself in joysticks to just working harder and harder and harder. know, so, uh, this silly little film that Graydon was doing, I, I was never out of character, and I was always, I was so invested in it.
6: Your energy level as King Vidiot is just insane
7: how were you
6: able to maintain that for so long
7: i think that it was thanks for saying i think that you know and 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 once again even though when that film came out i i wanted to kill myself i was like oh my god i hate this i'm terrible in this but now looking back on it i mean i i saw it down at the alamo draft house when zach brought me down and i was kind of a enamored with that energy level and that's really what I did I devoted myself to playing that character to the very core of my body and I just wanted to never be out of character whether I was off camera or whether I was in the background I was just you know and I think that was kind of a reaction funny enough as you brought up swap me to swap me because I, I told myself I would never I would never do that again I would never do that again
6: what do you remember about working on joysticks?
7: I just remember going to work every day and feeling really fulfilled. I remember hating to have my hair sprayed that color because because you know it, if I got too sweaty, it would start dripping all over me. You know, it was always like we were we were in an air, a set that didn't have air conditioning, so and it, it would get hot, you know, and invariably the blue would start streaking down my face, <laughs> which. You know, they could have just kept it for all. It it didn't matter, but but I just remember being really um, really sorry when it was over because I was so into doing it. I was just so into doing it, and and uh, and you know, uh, spending as much time there. I it was the first time anybody had ever shot a scene that I had been in, or a film for that matter, where Graydon says, "Okay, you see this, John? Here's where the camera's going to be." I want to show you where I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be back here. I was like, What? Yeah, I'm gonna be back in this room looking at a monitor. It's gonna be on the screen in a little video television in a television back here. It was the first time that I'd ever seen anybody use that technology. Because my certainly have my father didn't and and they didn't on uh you know, when I worked with B W L Norton on uh on More America City and I did the what is it, Chicken Chronicles. I mean those directors were 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 right there, looking over the camera. Swatman, same thing. They were looking over the camera. What kind of director is Graydon Clark to work with? The thing is, I, I'll 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 never forget thinking about him with like some of the other directors that I was working with at that time. Because B W L Norton, you know, had done Cisco Pike, and he was kind of of that whole really that school of guys that I wanted to be working with. You know, I wanted to be working in like two, I wanted to be working with the Monty Hellmans or the Francis Ford Coppola's or, you know, I wanted to work with those guys, you know, and, uh, he, he was kind of from that crew later on, much later on, just a side note. I met Monty Hellman and I couldn't stand him, but, but, and then seeing most of his films after, besides Tulane blacktop, I didn't much like any of them. So I was like, okay, well, maybe not so much Monty Hellman, but back then I wanted to be working with him, you know. And I remember Graydon being this guy who like kind of wore Dockers-type pants and a button-up shirt. And He always looked really well-coiffed, and he looked more like an accountant. He didn't look like a director. He never even reminded me of a director. And he always kind of had this very positive outlook about things, and he was very boastful in a positive way to the actors, not about himself. He was a lovely guy. But it was interesting because years later, I learned something from him, which was keeping control at all times and maintaining uh positivity, never let the cast know if there's a problem or, you know, he was like the guy that he was like a, a, a steel door, you, a fire door, you, you know, you were never going to get burned. You were never going to get burned. He was, he was really, really amazing that way. And so it's funny how I kind of judged him as like not being, that's not he's not like a director. You know, I thought a director had to be, you know, Bohemian, you know, like uh, you know, what's his name? Shampoo. Uh um, um. Oh, um uh Hal Ashby? Hal yeah. I thought that's 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 a director. Hal Ashby or Sidney Lumet on the other end, which is like really heavy theater. But this guy, he's just you know you know, he just he he had this way about him, but his creativity was in my estimation now, looking back you know with with the wisdom that I've accrued his his creativity was 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 no less you know than than the people that I'm mentioning. It just happened to be that the genre that he was working in was a genre that he felt very comfortable in
6: you know you don't seem like the kind of an actor who is ashamed of any of the roles that they've been in. I mean, some people might look back and be like, "Ah, oh, this was a cheesy sexploitation comedy uh, kind of swap thing." Me.
7: Swap me might be be the one because it's the one it's the one where I feel like, "What was I thinking?" You know, what was I thinking? Because because a little film like that back then, if you were if you really did well in the lead role, you know, your whole life would be different you know but it was it was uh it was it was an unwatchable performance it was terrible so you know yeah i can talk about that film but still to this day uh, i know that at one point zach had mentioned that they wanted to show it down i said you show that movie i'm never coming for that you won't see me sitting out there for that you know and there was another one i think monster squad for me was another one that i i mean i have a few along the way that i'm not too happy with i Get Shorty, Monster Squad, and and that. And I think Get Shorty mainly because, I I, you know, very quickly, Barry didn't, you know, Barry hired me. I think I was like the 250th person who came in, and there's a lot of big-name people that came in to read for that part. But he had a lot of names in the movie, and he was comfortable with what he had. And I did something different, and he said, You're the guy. I want you. And so when I got on set, I think I balked a little bit. I could partly me and partly him. Cause he was like, don't take so much time to do your, don't, you know, just say the lines. There's just too many people talking in this movie. Oh my God, it's going to be four hours. You know? So I, I didn't stick to my guns and just do the character that I knew I was going to, I wanted to play. I, I got scared. I was in a room with Gene Hackman and Del Orlando and John Travolta. And I, I lost my grounding because he said that. And I, I I broke every rule that I always followed, you know, just stick to your guns and do what you think is best and play your friggin' part. And it always, if you're locked into the character, it'll always be the right way to go. And I all of a sudden became somehow feeling like out of gratitude because I got this job in this great movie that I would do it faster and throw away some of the things that I had worked so hard to put in. And to me, looking at it, I, I look lost, you know, and not lost, but but not grounded, you know, the way that I knew I was. And even my agent at the time, the late Susan Smith, who was such a wonderful agent, she went to the premiere and she called me up. And, you know, she said, Johnny, you missed it. You missed it. And I said, you're right. I did. I knew it. I did it. I know. it. She says, yeah, you missed it. You missed an opportunity to, to do what you can do. And I said, I know. That movie, Swap
6: Meat
7: and Monster Squad. Those are the three.
6: It's funny because Monster Squad is one of those beloved movies that just people can not say enough good things about. So you have to feel a little bit ambivalent that this is one of the movies you're known for the best, but yet you're not happy with your own performance.
7: Yeah, I never was. I mean, I, I think that um, I, I don't know why. I don't know why. I I. I I don't know. It was just one of those things where I, I don't know. I mean, Peter Himes, I'd just done Running Scared and he, he was the executive producer of the movie and he just said, I'm going to put you in another film. And I guess maybe I, I never, I don't know. I, I sometimes at that point in my career, and it's, it's funny. It's totally the reverse now, but at that point, I felt if I was just given a part, then maybe I wasn't worthy of the part. Good music, Picasso. He might. Bird just put on a little song. and he plays a little music toy. Good music. So I always have to tell him, "Hey, that's great, good music, you knucklehead." He's a he's called an eclectic parrot. And so he puts on his music box, and he comes running right over and he looks at me like, "Did you hear that?" I put it on <laughs> it's to get attention. He just wants attention. <laughs> but I'm, if I put him in my lap, he'll sit there and go woo every minute. So that's why you know you'll be hearing him like. You know, I'm coming over to get him, so he's trying to get attention. Again, I just simply that I didn't ground the character. I never felt like I was fully grounded in the character and and in the genre. You know, the genre to me was really now looking back and I love the genre and I and and it's a great opportunity to take a character and even go further with them. And I just felt, you know, so you know, three out of all the the work, and there's a lot of crappy things along the way in there, but 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 three out of them isn't too bad. It just happens to be that they were pretty important pivotal places. You know,
6: I don't know of anybody other than maybe Lon Chaney Jr. who managed to pull off so many werewolf roles in such a I, short time.
7: I know. That's what I used to say. I'm like the, I'm like the, the the contemporary Lon Chaney, like the new guy. Even though Fright Night Part II, he wasn't really a werewolf. He was, he was a vampire who, who, who became a wolf, but still it's still, it still falls under the auspice of a werewolf.
6: The first time I really remember seeing you and it was one of those like, I'm sure right now you have a lot of people that come up to you and go, Oh, Uncle Rico, Uncle Rico. Yeah. For me, if, if I had seen you five years ago, I would have been like, Oh, Laszlo, you know, because you were Laszlo to, for
7: me for a long, long time. You know that was um, that was the, the, the for me. I appreciate that. That was for me that that was the, the changing point in my life. You know that was it. That's where I felt all the pieces started to come together, and I was and I was going to do what I was going to do. And you know that's why looking back at movies that happen for for movies to happen after that experience, and for me to be unhappy with those movies. Well, Kill Me Again is another one too that, that, that also was a little upsetting. You know, I just, I don't know, I, I, I just w- went through a few periods where there was so much going on that sometimes I couldn't slow everything down and just do my job, you know? And I think that, that um, I never felt quite grounded in Kill Me Again. I mean, but that was partly because of, you know, there was problems on the set and there was a lot of turmoil on that film. But, but, but because of real genius, I feel like that that kind of set in stone the way that I liked, that I knew I had kind of accumulated my work method. I don't know whatever you want to call it, but it kind of all, it kind of became uh, synthesized there. It all has amalgamated itself right there.
6: Every time I would see you on screen after that, just your mannerisms as Laszlo, that kind of hesitancy that you brought to the role the being scared of the worldness uh, it was it was so pitch perfect
7: oh thank you well you know there was a little bit of Laszlo in that character bruce that i did on the pretender a little bit of that except Brutes was a, a a lot less serious he was just you know he represented the eyes of the the normal world because that world that, that he was in was clearly nothing close to normal so it was a great opportunity for him to have his, um, a, a little bit of his, his, you know, his, his fear, you know, his, I don't know. You know, I mean, one of the directors used to say, you're like the Barney Fiverr of the show. I said, don't you dare call me the Barney Fiverr of the show. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. But, you know, there, there, he had a little bit of, I understand where he was coming from. I just was, I was like, I, I can't imagine. I, I don't look like M- Mr. You know, Limpet or whatever.
6: Right. Yeah. But, you were talking about working with this cast of, like, say, Get Shorty, and you have been in so many great ensemble pieces. Like uh, September Gun is one that always comes to mind wow. as far as how many terrific actors were in there. That was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to watch. I'm glad to hear that it was a lot of fun to make. Yeah, it was.
7: It was a lot of fun, yeah. Yeah, I've been lucky in that way. I mean, I feel like even the show that I'm doing now, uh, this show on Adult Swim, Dream Corp. I love this ensemble. It's just amazing. These kids, these, you know, they're just so good and they're so funny. And as I was saying to them afterwards, you know, they're like, we really respect you. And I said, like, you guys, I swear to God, I feel like I'm, you're all Usain Bolt and I'm just trying to keep up. You know, they're, they're pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. And I'm very excited that the show's been picked up, so we do a bunch more. be really exciting. I've been lucky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good ensembles, yeah.
6: The other one to me where everyone is just so perfect in all of their roles for me is Terror Vision.
7: Uh-huh. Yeah. It was fun.
6: What a cat I mean, it, it is just such a pleasure, especially Garrett Graham, just watching him Everyone is terrific in there. And then especially you playing that, that nice Irish boy, OD.
7: Yeah, OD. And Burt Remsen, I think, is so good in that movie. Burt Remsen needed to, to, to work more as an actor. I mean, he started to towards the end of his life, but, you know, obviously being that he had one foot about, you know, eight inches shorter than, you know, a leg eight inches shorter than the other. And so he always had this kind of odd walk, but, my God, was he a good actor, and and he was also a casting director for a while. You know, he, his wife Barbara Remsen, I believe, cast *Helter Skelter*. So crazy, crazy, crazy. Um, yeah, Garrett Graham. Uh, you know, uh, Chad Allen. Uh, uh, oh, oh our, our, Alejandro uh, Ray. Yeah, Alejandro Ray. Oh my God, what an amazing actor! He's so funny. He is really funny. Mary legendary.
6: I just love the the look of that movie. Everything just so candy
7: colored and and unreal to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that half of that is Ted Nicolau, and the other half is that we shot it in Italy. <laughs> and like, you know, that's the way the colors are. I mean, that's like the set directors. They, they they you know they they make it their idea of America, which is really really an interesting take. It's like yeah, get get, and I can't. I'm sorry, but it's been so many friggin' years. I can't remember the set designer's name. But let's take a classically Italian trained set designer and make and tell him to make. We want you to make the quintessential American home, and American world. And he can't help but but make it kind of you know Neapolitan.
6: Like I said, you really to me were totally hitting your stride here in the mid-80s with Real Genius and Terror Vision, and then you mentioned before Running Scared. I mean, that movie, still to this day, is one of my favorites. It was a great film,
7: and it was great working with Peter Himes, and it was great working with all those guys. And I'll tell you, not too many people know, but the way I got that film was um, I had a meeting with Peter Himes at MGM, which is now Sony. And we had a great meeting, and sitting out in the waiting room was Ray Liotta and David Caruso, right? They were the other two guys who he was meeting for the part that I was up to play. And and Peter Hyman says, I really like you. I want you to do this movie, but I can't, I can't. If you have no film, I don't know what what, what are you going to show me? And, of course, the only thing I'd done that I thought was anything respectable but had not been finished yet was was real genius. I didn't want to show him anything else, you know? everything else I thought was crap up to that point. You know, it was all part of like my my stepping stones, my stride. So I said, I- I'll figure it out, and uh, I said, I'll get you filmed this week. Uh, you know, and so I contacted uh, the production office of Real Genius, and it turns out Richard Shue, who edited Star Wars, was editing Real Genius, and he was editing on at the MGM lot. So I called him and I said, Hey. Richard is John Grise. and he's like, Oh my God, I love you in this movie. You know, he's being really sweet. And I said, Richard, I need to show some scenes. Do you think that you can help me out? He said, I have two of your scenes bookending these two reels so we can, if you need to have them shown, we can send them somewhere and they'll just look at the beginning of this one and the beginning. It'll be a work print, but you know, I said, no problem. No problem. I said, let me get back to you. So I called operations at MGM and I said, Peter Himes would like a screening room on Friday morning. If you could, uh, if you could arrange that uh for Mr. Himes. And they said, what well, would you like a, a larger room? I said, sure. What do you have? And they said, well, we can give you the Cary Grant. There's nobody in. I said, well, he'll need a projectionist. And yeah, yeah. And yeah, of course this goes on his tab, right? So I set it all up and then I called Richard Chu and said, get the film there by blah, blah, blah. And then I called Peter Himes office and I said, go to the Cary Grant screening room, uh, at, uh, 11 a.m. on Friday. He said, I'll do it. And so he went, and then he called me, and that's when I was getting on the plane to go, to ter- to go shoot television. I was on my way, to, just about to go to the airport. just on my way out the door. The phone rang, and he said, John, in your film. You're going to be the part. We're sending you the script. We'll make the offer. Just go do whatever you're doing, and we'll take care of it. And that was just the most amazing feeling, because the script arrived while I was in Italy shooting television you know, living in this beautiful little bungalow on the beach, you know, the Adriatic. And uh, I think it was the Adriatic. It was beautiful. No, not the Adriatic. No, it was the other side. So we were on the other side. We were on, you know, by Rome. But yeah, the Mediterranean or whatever it was, you know. And there was a little hotel called the Corsetti di Mar, and it was only 14 rooms, and there were bungalows, and it was beautiful right on the beach. And it was incredible. And all the other, you know, few, few of the other, Mary Warnoff was there, and Diane Franklin was there, and I don't remember. Garrett Graham may have been out there as well. And it was just, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. It turned into a really luscious, fun trip. And then, of course, going back and jumping into Running scared was wonderful.
6: Watching it, uh, you know, these days, you look back, and everybody in that movie is somebody. You know, to see such a young <laughs> Joe Pantoliano in there, oh, it's like, yeah. What? <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot. And he's hes
7: almost wearing the King Vidiot hairstyle. Oh, no, one. I know. I loved him. I, I love him. I mean, I haven't seen him. this. I loved him. I loved him then. He's a funny, oh, my God, is he a funny human being. He's one of the funniest guys. And we became really, really good friends. Very close. And, you know, he's just kind of, he, I don't know, he's kind of pulled himself out of the business, but. I mean, I hope he's watching. I don't, I, you know, I don't watch much of anything, but I, I hope he is because he's so good.
6: You know, I have to tell you that uh, my wife is a huge pretender fan. She's the one who got me into the show. Oh, cool. Yeah, she was um, very much. Uh, well, she she had a big time crush on the lead. Why am I forgetting
7: Michael his name? Michael
6: Well, my name is Michael White, so she was just like, oh yeah, you're so so
7: so close. Yeah. <laughs> well, when she's saying, oh Michael, you better be careful, she might have
6: <laughs> yeah, and that's another one with just such a great cast. I mean, oh, yeah. um I I never know how you say uh Patrick show. No, such a great actor and then Michael T Weiss was just uh, amazing in that and Andrea Parker, I mean, everyone was so good in that. Yeah, and, and and
7: Richard Marcus playing Dr. Rains and Jamie Denton, now James Denton, and even Leland Orser whom I've had the pleasure of working with a bunch of times had a reoccurring role in that and every time he showed up on the set it was always exciting you know he's so good
6: i always love to see him show up and stuff so like good. his role in in seven and um alien resurrection i mean just whenever he shows up he brings such
7: a joy he's berlin station now he's so good he's just good he's just such such a solid actor he's kind of when i was younger the kind of actor that i hated because i wanted to be that grounded you know what I mean? I was always a little too footloose and fancy, fancy free, and I wanted to be so grounded. I mean, I didn't really hate him. I, I envied them. I love them for their amazing talent and being so focused and grounded. He, he's so good. He's such an inspiration for me.
6: The Pretender, was that your first directing job doing an episode of that?
7: Uh, you know, back in the you know yes definitely of a narrative i mean i made a sh- couple of short films on my own as, as narrative shorts that i never released or tried to release um and i but i was directing music videos i you know there was a period of time just before i i guess it was like 1990 89 88 i started um directing music videos and shooting music videos for people i was doing a lot of cinematography uh, and, and so I did these videos for priority records, which is kind of funny now because working with, you know, all those guys at that time, you know, then you see straight out of Compton and I was, I was in the mix, you know, at that time and all that was going on, um, as a director, you know, and I sat in that office, Turner's office when he was saying, you know how we started this record company, you know, the Ravens, you know, the, that was what he, the truly, they made a record of the, of the, of the California raisins. Because they, those commercials, and then they just started making, a, they made a record, and as a one-off, and made so much money, they started a record label, and then they became, you know, then the rest is history. I was doing a band called Low Profile. You ever go on YouTube and look up Low Profile, uh, rap videos, or, you know, I did three of their videos. And, and, um, so that's, I was tr- actually at that point in my life trying to transition away from, from, uh, acting into directing, so. You know, but then I, I kept getting these, you know, twenty-five thousand dollar budget videos, and I just there was I couldn't make any money. You know, just, all the money would end up going into production because I was trying to make each one look better so I could kind of up my value, and it just became a vicious cycle. And so I think the last video I got offered was that I'm naughty by nature OPP, and I turned it down because they only they said well, our budget's ten thousand dollars. Like, well, what do you expect me to do? I'm going to fly me and my producer to New York. That's, that's 20% of the budget right there, you
6: know. I seem to barely remember that video other than it just being like a crowd of people all
7: jumping around. And my concept was, was much better, but you know, and they, that's why they awarded it. And it would have been great because, you know, to go from Tom, try priority over to Tommy boy would have been, you know, kind of a coup. But, um, I ended up doing, uh, what did I end up doing? I, I guess September Gun. That's what I ended up doing. I took that. Was that the job I did? No. Uh, yeah. No. What was the No, no. I ended up taking, what was the one? September Gun was with Patty Duke, right? What was the one I did with Judge Reinhold, a Western, a Turner Network Television. Fred Ward, Judge Reinhold. I can't remember what that was. Four, four Eyes for Four Guns, something like that. It was a Turner Network Television movie with, with Judge uh, Reinhold and uh, and Fred Ward and I can't remember the famous character actor life me. I can't remember his name. And, but that you know that paid me way better than how I was going to get paid to eight by Nature. So. Uh,
6: was Emmett Walsh yes, was in that? Yes,
7: Walsh. That's right. Okay. Right, his name just slipped my mind. I have great pictures with me and him. Yeah, at Walsh.
6: How did you get involved with uh, Twin Falls, Idaho? Because you're not just acting in that one. You are also associate producer, and then
7: you even wrote a song for that. Yeah, well, you know what happened was they lived on my block. All brothers lived on my block, and I never met them. And one night, I'd seen them all a bunch, you know, and their heads were shaved at the time. And I thought, who well, are these two alien brothers, you know? I remember I, I, my band had played at the Mint, and I was, you know, got home early. I was walking the dogs. I probably had a couple more beers than I usually have. And here comes one of them walking up the street wearing a suit, carrying a film can. And I was like, hey, what you got in the can? And he goes, it's my short film. I won honorable mention at the DGA. I said, cool, good. Uh, hey, I'd like to see that film. He goes, I can I can bring you a copy on VHS. And I was like, good. I live right there. He goes, oh, I know exactly where you live. I, I, I'm a huge fan of Real Genius. You know, he started like mentioning credits. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, well, that's where I live. He goes, I have a script too, if you'd like to read it. I said, sure, bring it by. So he brought me North Forks, and I read it and I was like, and I watched the film. The film was really good. And I called him. I mean, he gave me left his number and I called him and I said, um, script's great. I mean, the script's good, but all over the place. I can't quite get where you're going with it, but the film's really good. And, um, I don't know. You got anything else? And he was like, you know, Mike Paul was like, ah, oh, we're working on a couple things. And, I just happened to be had worked with this woman named Rena Ronson, who's now head of I guess independent film over at Billy Morris. But at the time, she was producing for a small company, and she I did a film for Showtime with her with Mark Harmon, where I played a cop, and I don't know. She produced this film, and then um, and then she liked me and got me into this other film called The Maze, which was this really weird film with John Collier Esposito and me, where we were playing father and son in flashbacks, and I was his white father in flashbacks. And then um, I, I guess what happens, I called her and I said, "Rena, I want you to meet these guys. I want to send you this film. I think you should see it. I want you to meet. Them. She goes, do they have anything written? I said, I got a script here. It's not quite ready. But I just thought of you because I know you're like the champion of these kind of things. She was like, send it along. So I sent everything over. to huh? She called me back after watching the film. She goes, I'd love to meet these guys. I love this film. And she goes, but I'm a little on the fence about the script. I said, yeah, the script shows promise, but it, I can't quite figure out where it is. So I called them and I said, we got a meeting with this lady, you know, let's go. And this is the first thing they'd ever had, you know. And so we went in and all three of us sat there and she said, um, you know, I'm not feeling the script. What else? Do you have anything else? Do you want to talk about anything? And they, they mentioned the premise for Twin Falls, Idaho. And she said, you write that and I will make that. And truly, six weeks later, they had a draft on my doorstep having me red pencil it. And go, no, this is, yeah, this is good. This is not. And so we did that about three drafts. And then, and this is back when they were receptive to that kind of thing because they said they (laughs) won't. I don't even talk to them. It's a whole other story. But she made the movie. She, She pulled it together and she put that movie together. And, you know, the rest. And we did Jackpot right after that. And what had happened is somebody put their money up for Jackpot. And then at the last second, pulled the money. And, you know, they came to me and said, can we borrow some money? And I happened to be playing the stock market at the time. So, I borrowed $100,000 and gave it to him and said, you know, guys, please don't fucking pay me back. And so they ended up getting the money from Sade and then they gave me back my money and we made the movie. You know, she was pretty much the sole financier of that film. And then, and then I remember later on seeing Fred Roos at the Seattle Film Festival and Fred Roos said, you know, he heard the story about me putting $100,000 up and he said, because we won the Seattle international film fest, we won both the jury and the audience award. He looked at me and he said, are you fucking kidding? You put a hundred thousand dollars. It was like that took brass balls putting that money out there. And that's how that happened. And then, you know, a few other things after that. And then, and then, you know, like when we finally did North fork at one point, they ran out of money. I mean, it was, you know, it was like wild west, you know, we ran out of money in the middle of shooting and, they they, put, they came to me and said, we can't pay the caterers. Do you have any money? And I'm like, you have a 100 bucks. It's and then they put me on a plane, and I came to L.A., and I had a bunch of meetings with different people to try and sell the movie, get money. And one of the meetings I had was with Paramount Classics, who ultimately wouldn't finance the movie, but they ended up, based on our meeting, buying the film. So I guess that's why they gave me credit on that, too that that
6: moment in film seemed to be kind of ending the independent cycle, you yeah. know? And I would say that you were probably in one of the last great independent films mm. being Napoleon dynamite. Oh yeah. I love, uh, the Sasquatch dumping, dumpling gang as well. That, that's a tremendous film but um can you tell me how did you get involved with napoleon because i
7: remember that being a short yeah no i, I yeah I, basically i didn't know any of those guys i was um doing i had done you know i quit acting after the pretender was over i quit and i was writing and i was writing every day and i called susan and i said you know i'm done i'm i'm just going to really go full on now i'm making independent films and i'm and while i about i guess about this, Seven months later, Jory White's called me up, and he was uh, casting a film called *The Big Empty*, and uh, he had an actor fall out, and Daryl Hannah was in it, and so she mentioned my name, and next thing you know, they were like, "Yeah, let's see if we can get this guy." So he called me. He's like, "What the fuck are you doing? Why aren't you? I, you know, I, I tried to find you. I couldn't find you. I had to get your home number." And I told him, and he was like, well, I'm making this movie out here in Baker with, you know, John Favreau and Kelsey Grammer and Daryl Hannah, and Daryl wants you to come out would you do this movie? And I said, is it a good part? yeah, well, it's a good role, I'll do it. He said, let me send you the script. He sent me the script. I read it, I said, yeah, I'll come and do it. You know, it's a couple easy weeks of work, and I need the money. So I did the movie. Jory White's moved on to Napoleon Dynamite. And so when they were casting Uncle Rico, they put out an offer to the guy from My Name is Earl, What's his name, uh, Jason Lee, right? Yeah. And, and 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 he turned it down. And, you know, a, a lot of people, like, apparently they offered it to a few people who turned it down. And what happened was they were just sitting in the editing room. They were borrowing the editing room because the, the big empty was finished. And Jory asked if he could, you know, while these kids from Utah were out in Los Angeles trying to cast this movie, could we borrow the, the editing room because, you know, the movie was cut? And the editing room just so happened to be over at Fox. Uh, he basically just said, I, I think I want to show you this guy and showed some of my scenes from The Big Empty. And they just said, let's make an offer. And so thats they just sent me the script and my manager called, my manager at the time, not the manager, but now and called and said, I don't think you should do this. These guys don't have any money. I don't even know who they are, but blah, 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 blah. And i was like, send me the script. Let me read it. And by page 15, I was laughing out loud and I called my manager and I said, you tell them I'm there. I'm doing it. And so that was it.
6: That is one of those movies – I mean, I'm squarely in the camp of I love that film, but it is such a divisive film. Yeah. It's one of those – it's a barometer for can I get along with this person or not. It's like, do you like Napoleon Dynamite?
7: No? Well, maybe we shouldn't be friends. Oh, you know, the funny thing is there are a lot of people that I've known – You know, and it's funny you mentioned Joey Pagliano because I'll never forget when that film came out – he called me up and he was like, oh my God, he's living in Connecticut. And he goes, John, this is the first time I'm able to sit with my kids and watch a movie and we're all enjoying it. It's either their movies or my movies. You know what I mean? But no, it's this movie, you know? But there are a lot of people who in the beginning hated it and they hated it because of its popularity more so. You know, you know, this movie not so all that. But I had found a lot of those people along the way who were like, yeah, I didn't like that movie. I was like, yeah, it's not for everyone. Those people are now, like, about fans. As you see, it's that kind of movie that you can watch it. You manage to get in front of it a couple of times. The first time you get away and you're not, eh, by the third time, if you watch it more than once, even the second time, you're going to be grabbed. And it's so good, it's such a good movie. It really is. Jared is I think Jared Hess is a genius, My that's my feeling about him. I think that guy's—you know—anything he touches is going to be, is never going to be boring, never going to be uninteresting or flat.
6: I've read that you were attached as being a director of a film called Coker. Is that true? Well, that's a
7: weird thing. Those those guys—I—I did a film. Those guys directed me in a film that are the Locker Thirteen. This thing that they did called Locker Thirteen. They asked me if I wanted to be involved with this film called Coker. But this is like, I'm not kidding you, two and a half years ago. I mean, I, I haven't talked to them. And I think they, at one point they said, we want you to direct this movie. And I, I remember they, they sent me the script. And I was like, ah, guys, this, is, this thing's got a lot of problems. They were so excited about it. I had just finished helping a kid, a guy named Derek Walker, write this film called Another Man's Gun, which is just heads and tails so far better than the thing they sent me and i was like guys this is cool but i mean if if you're not if you're interested in reading something else i've got a script that is is a i mean in this genre it's as good as it gets cuz i spent i think with this kid we spent almost 2 years working on the script he'd come over once a week once every other week sometimes and we would just Hack at it and hack at it and hack at it and hack at it. And he's a, he's a gifted writer, but he, it just, he need, he'd never written a script, you know, he, he needed work. And, and because I believed in it so much, I, I really, really wanted to help him out. And it just, it just developed into a friendship, you know, and then he would just come by, we'd hang out, we'd talk about the script for a few hours, you know. Um, but beyond that, I, I, I never, I've never heard from them since. So I, I I'm, it's funny. That might be one of those IMDb things. It seems like people can put anything they want on there. You know, you know. I was directing a film about eighteen months ago called Big Life that we'd actually cast. I rewrote the script. We were, Val was going to be the lead, and then, um, and then he had some health issues, and uh, I guess we were about seven days from shooting. And the producers pulled the plug. I mean, I had my whole crew, Rodney Charters, who shoot, who shot The Pretender and also shoots 24, shot 24. And then just recently did Zach Braff's latest film and he's working like crazy. He was my DP. We shot a bunch of plates for driving and, you know, we, we were ready to go and and it fell through. one of those things that happens you know it's an unfortunate though because i think the script turned out and it turned out really good
6: tell me a little bit more about dream corp llc dream corp
7: llc is uh uh, i mean to me it's kind of like it it, you know the first i'm going to come with the really amazing thing is that the new york times picked it as the top one of the top 10 show new shows of this last season you know That's pretty amazing for an adult swim show. It reminds me of early 70s English, you know, British uh, comedy mixed with a little bit of psychedelia, you know, because the animation is all rotoscope animation, which has, believe it or not, has never, as old as rotoscope animation is, it's never been done on an American television series. It's never been done on a show regularly. It's been done and certainly some movies, you know, like waking, oh, was it? The waking life, is it? Yeah, that's rotoscope and, and the one with Tom Hanks, the train thing, whatever it was, where it was animated, Polar Express, right. But it's beautiful. And these, these artists are, are really incredible. And Dan, Daniel Stessen, the creator, director, visionary of the show, writer, um, now, sh- and showrunner as well. He, he, he's one of those people, man. He's one of, I'm lucky. I meet these people like Jared Hess, you know, uh, who have their, their way about doing things. I mean, even going all the way back to Graydon Clark, because Graydon Clark to me had that same vision sense. He just was what he did, you know, he had his way of doing it. He was in his own, you know, world, but he was, he was completely invested in it and completely strong in it. It's the same way with these guys, you know, Daniel Stesson is going to be, you know, he'll be like one of those household names eventually, you know, actually I would hired him to be in this film that I was directing. He was going to play a part and, you know, we, we've known each other for years and we've done things back and forth. And, um, you know, he's, he's directed a couple of videos that I shot you know, like a funny little comedy skit type videos. And, and, and then, uh, you know, um, he called me when he got, all right, I'm right here. I'm right here, right here. When he got this pilot to do this, he called me and said, Hey, would you like to be on this show? And he sent me the script and I was like, wow, this, I love this. This is incredible. and, and then we we did the pilot when we got a six, a six episode order and then now it's been picked up for 14 more but um you know it's right out of Ray Kurzweil. i mean it's really it, it's about it has this sense of singularity about becoming immortal through through uh through you know it, it it's much bigger than than the platform in the sense like you know Adult Swim has a lot of kind of crazy, fun, wild, cartoony stuff, and and though this has animation in it and and live action at the same time, I think there's a bigger, a much bigger thing being presented here. I think that's why the New York Times kind of picked up on it because it's about becoming through technology immortal. It's just dealing with a lot of the technological things that that I think are are of this time and and extremely relevant and yet at the same time it's wildly entertaining really funny and and uh, really dry and i love the character i mean i love the character you know and and i don't know if you've had a chance to see it but if you do check it out cuz it's you know the good thing about adult swim is you can get on adultswim.com And just pick on any, pick any of their shows and, and they, they'll let you watch, you know, the episodes are on there for you to watch, you know, but I, I do, I'm, I'm, you know, my, actually, you know, as I said to Daniel Stesson, I said, dude, if I could just keep doing this for the rest of my career, this would be it. I can just do this and be totally happy. You know, it's a lead character, which is obviously a lot of fun, you know, but at the same time, fully an ensemble cast because everybody's very, very, as much a lead as, as the lead character. It just so happens that I'm the doctor who runs the whole thing. But, you know, everybody's, you know, Nick Rutherford or, or Stephanie Allen or uh, Mark Prosh, who's ho- hilarious. Um, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a great, great group, great group of people. Really good. So it's, it's very satisfying. It's purely satisfying.
6: You know. Well, thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure talking
7: yeah, with likewise. you. Yeah, likewise. Nice. And anytime, anytime you you up, know, if there's anything, follow up or anything else you think of that you want to talk about or ask, I'm around. I mean, I'm, I'm just here hanging out. I, I'm trying, I, I don't want to say this out loud because somebody might hear it, but I, I've been offered a, a couple of different jobs in the last few weeks and I've turned them both down. But it's not that I'm turning work down. I just, I'm just enjoying not working right at the very moment you know so I'm around I'm around I'm writing I mean I am working I'm just working on, on my own thing a little bit
6: All right, we're back and we're talking about joysticks. So I'm curious as far as what you guys, uh, what your experiences are with arcades. Um, I know you're a little bit younger than I am. So I'm I'm wondering how the age difference is going to play in this. So, Chris, what kind of arcade experience did you have when you were a kid?
1: I'm, I'm 42, so arcades were like the sort of thing that I saw the birth and death of in my lifetime. Um, and they were really, really big in my childhood. Like, whenever, uh, I would, I would go to the mall with my parents, like my brother, sister, and I, we would try to go to, like, the arcade, or, I mean, you're, you also have to bear in mind that video games are absolutely everywhere. They were in, in the video store. They were in the supermarket. They were in, like, even doctor's offices. Like, they had video games everywhere in the 80s. If it was a cool place, you'd have at least like a kicks machine, if nothing else. Um, so I spent a lot of time at two, uh, video arcades that were both in malls one was the spaceport and i forget the name of the other one but yeah i mean they were they were pretty big for me in the in the early 80s and i have a lot of like very fond memories of arcades and then as i got older uh we got i guess when i was like 10 or 11 we got a commodore 64 so it became more about like playing video games at home even more so than when we had an atari because the atari couldn't really compete with uh the the video game graphics, but the Commodore sixty four kind of could. So uh yeah, I mean video games were huge a huge part of um my childhood. So watching this movie, like sense memory just washed over me of like what it was like going into these places and how like as a kid it felt like a very mature place. Uh, for me, and they were still around when I was a teenager, but by that time I wasn't really interested in going to arcades because the games were just as good as you could play at home. So yeah, I'm glad I had that aspect uh, of my childhood when I was able to really like fully enjoy going to the arcade either with friends or with family.
0: I didn't get to hang out a lot at arcades when I was, when I was real little. Um, But I remember uh my main memories of them include, there was one at our local mall, but I never really got to go in there a whole lot. Like I just kind of walked by and see it and be like, Whoa. And it just seemed like a lot of very fascinating sensory overload. Um And then showbiz pizza, which now is known as Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, Cause I had a few birthday parties there and I absolutely loved it. And um I was not a good gamer. So it was it was always like heaven and hell for me. Like I, I had a great time, but then I'd be like, I only got like three tickets, you know. <laughs> but um, when I got a little bit older, um, especially in my teen years, um, I was really honestly more into PC gaming. Um, I did a little bit of console gaming. Like I loved Nintendo and Super Nintendo. But um, I became very much like an avid computer gamer uh, in my mid to late teenage years. Uh, so that's really more of my memories. But just my. my Little grasp of arcade memories are just all very sensory. Lots of lots of sounds, lots of uh, you know seedy characters and children, <laughs> and lots of odd smells and, um, and you know. And there was such a different era because even you know it seems like even in the eighties and early nineties, even you could go to places that weren't arcades and find console games. Like it could be a gas station or even like one of the local uh, video rental places had um, a uh, Nightmare on Elm Street themed pinball machine. Uh, which was awesome. <laughs> absolutely. That's so I absolutely cool. love Oh, <laughs> very cool. And I loved it. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, yeah, definitely a different era now.
6: Yeah, I remember we had, uh, the, uh, local sub shop had amazing video games. When I went to college, we had video games in West Quad and pinball machines down in South Quad. And it was just like, yeah, they were, everywhere and there's still a few places they kind of, they kind of hide out you know in like the the vestibules at uh Red Robin those kind of things but yeah they were as you guys said they were everywhere every place you went you could find a video game and it was just so such a great thing because you'd be there stuck with your parents and it's like yeah I'm gonna go uh, play some centipede they've got like the sit down one with the the cool trackball and stuff (laughs) and you get to whip it across and and watch them shoot all over the place yeah we had a little arcade in Riverview where I grew up and I mean it was real little it was like smaller than my basement if memory serves or at least that's how I remember it, I remember they sold uh, Penny Candy in there, so you got the kids all hopped up on sugar and then played, you know, um, oh god, what was the of Robotron, uh, (laughs) Robotron and Defender. Uh, My favorite game had to be Tron, even though I sucked at it. So I, I, the best times of my lives are when we would uh, go on company outings to Dave and Buster's, I'm talking just within the last few years, and you would get the card where you can play pretty much unlimited and just playing Tron and trying to get through it (laughs) at all because I was just so terrible at it. But we had one arcade uh in the neighborhood, uh the Red Baron, and it it was at a place that looked like a big barn and they had a lot of uh stuff in there, but I do remember more the mall. The mall arcade was definitely where it was at, and uh you really couldn't be a good mall without an arcade and um having you know good games in there, but um do they still they still have Chuck E. Cheeses around, don't mm-hmm. they? Oh yeah. Okay. I haven't been to a Chuck E. Cheese in a while, but, um, cause those animatronic animals kind of freak me out. So I, I kind of stay away from them.
0: <laughs> you know, that, that's funny cause I actually almost got kicked out of one, uh, when I was six cause I tried to jump on stage, uh, and, uh, and be a part of the Rock of Fire band.
5: <laughs> oh, that's great.
0: <laughs> I, I, I clearly remember my mother having to pull me <laughs> to like Heather know. Um, Which I which I heard a lot uh, in my childhood. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Actually, one quick thing, and I don't know if you're gonna want to edit this in or leave it out, Mike. But I I forgot to mention. I don't know if you guys noticed who um in the credits. One of one of the set painters in this film was Frank Silva, who was who was Bob in Twin Peaks.
6: Holy shit!
0: Isn't that amazing? I I I had to put that in my notes because I was like, oh my god, I love Frank Silva. I mean, and of course that's how he got the role of Bob because he was a set painter for Twin Peaks and David Lynch saw him and was like, Oh my God, this, you know, it was so struck by his look. And
6: can you imagine like you're playing a video game and you see like Bob come over your shoulder and his face is <laughs> reflected in. the. <laughs> I, I could totally see
0: him like peeking out around the hot dog in the cleavage. That would have. been. <laughs> oh. <laughs>
6: <laughs> he would be the guy that comes over and puts the quarter on the top of the game, like, I'm next, motherfucker. <laughs> like, oh, oh. you Video game etiquette, you know? I'm
0: so sorry, Mike. I did not mean to interrupt you. I was just like. No problem. I was just like, Oh my god, you know that man would've rocked the hell out of a no shirt, denim vest, side nipple.
6: You promised the side nipple was coming back and there it was.
0: I deliver. (laughs) I tried to at least
6: Do you guys remember the Saturday Night Live? You know how they they used to have movies on there and they would do like those weird kind of like especially like early eighties. The Eddie Murphy Martin Short kind of era of um, Saturday Night Live, they would do a lot of like little mini movies, and they had one that was about uh, I believe that the guy's name might have been Jeff or no, it was Alan, Alan the video game addict. Do you remember that one, Chris? No. Oh man, it was amazing. I will definitely post a link um, on uh, this episode because it is basically the confessions of this kid who is addicted to video games and then they go through and they talk about all these other kids who are addicted to video games and they show this one little girl in a fur coat and it says meet
2: phyllis she's hooked on a video game called dig dug tonight phyllis will earn six dollars and 75 cents the hard way a quarter at a time
6: and they interview this uh, this old guy And he's just like Sometimes out of my window
3: At night, you know And go to the arcade Have you played Tron? Huh? It's totally awesome Timmy
2: is 11 years old <laughs> Timmy is seeking help Alan is another story
5: Sure, I play a lot of games But I think I can deal with it It's not like I'm
2: hooked or anything. Four days after we completed our interviews, Alan was run over by a garbage truck. He was on his way to a video arcade.
6: This whole thing with Rudder, like attacking the arcade and all that, that's like, kind of a real thing i remember the parents in my hometown being up in arms about arcades and just what a bad influence it was because it's one of these like we don't know where our children are i mean to to heather's point it's like yeah you could be under the bleachers drinking mad dog 2020 or you could be at the arcade playing video
1: games well Mm -hmm. i don't know in a In Philadelphia, there was one arcade specifically called Champions that was in uh, Roosevelt Mall. And this is northeast Philadelphia. So it's not, you know, it wasn't like a rough area. It's basically the suburbs. It's not even the main line. No, it's almost like it's almost like outside of Philadelphia. It's kind of the end of Philadelphia. Uh, And this one Champions arcade was known as the Bad Arcade. And it's where all the metalheads, I'm doing air quotes, and uh, druggies Mm -hmm. would hang out. Um, and that was the one that my parents always said, you know, you can, you and your friends and your brother and sister, cause my, my siblings are older than me, like, we could hang out, but we couldn't go to Champions because Champions was the bad arcade. And, it, and parents' groups were always trying to get that shut down because it was right near a, uh, eight screen movie theater, which was also unheard of in Philadelphia at the time. Uh, so that was like that was, you know, where all the bad influence kids would hang out at that movie theater and at that arcade. And I remember parents groups and a few church groups, um, because God forbid anyone have fun with the church groups. Uh, <laughs> they were always kind of protesting uh, the um, the the champions arcade. And eventually it did shut down.
6: Yeah. Rudder got his way. Man. Yeah. Dorfus lost the game. And so did Jeff. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's so dark. Maybe there shouldn't be a sequel to this movie. <laughs> You're like this oh well, yeah, the first one was so much fun. That second one's a bit of a downer, you know, like you know, we're gonna find out like, it's gonna open with like a tombstone and Dorfus's names on it or something you know, something like that. <laughs> it's gonna be like way too dark. They could get really
6: disturbing. and have Larry Clark. Oh, no, no. we couldn't get Graydon Clark. So we got Larry Clark instead. (laughs) Oh
0: my God. (laughs) Oh, that's, (laughs) that was, that is very nightmarish to think of. (laughs) I don't remember any places like that around here getting protested or protested. Um, I do remember as a kid, I was explicitly told not to hang out at a certain bowling alley. (laughs) Down yeah, because that's where all the, the criminal element, and I'm putting air quotes around that, uh, hung out. But uh, but bowling alleys, I think, seem a little bit more unseemly than an arcade.
6: Well, I've got one last question for you guys before we uh, take another break and play preview. What was your favorite console game that you'd play at the arcade?
1: You know, I mentioned Miss Pac-Man earlier, but there was one that was kind of like it was always a, a surprise when I found it. It was this game called Poo-Yan. Which sounds absolutely filthy, but it was like there—you were a pig and you were trying to get from the top of the screen to the bottom of the screen, and there were wolves shooting arrows at you. Uh, and it really great gameplay, and it was something that was kind of like if I found it, it was a real surprise, and I enjoyed it. Um, so that was a lot of fun. And then the other big one that was kind of like a novelty and fun with me was Paperboy because it talked and like the mm-hmm. the, uh, can, the joystick was bike spokes. Uh, I mean, a bike handle. Uh, and I was, I was absolutely terrible at that game, but I kept playing it because I thought it was so cool. And I also had the Tron experience you had. Uh, I loved the game. I loved any kind of video game that was based on movies. I would, I would gravitate to immediately and being a, having no hand eye coordination, I was always terrible at them, but like things like the Tron machine, which was like neon lit and just a, just a beautiful thing to look at. Uh, I would just go over there and, um. And play it, and then lose my money instantly. But man, did it look great!
0: As a little kid, I would actually probably say Mrs. Pac-Man and any pinball machine I could get my hands on. Uh, actually, as an adult, I live in a college town. We actually have a place called Arcadia that is a like a retrocade, and it's nothing but old school console games from the early '80s that have been like taken care of and fixed. And um, and as an adult, I would say a tie between Burger Time. <laughs> <laughs> and Sinistar, which Sinistar I am absolutely horrible at, but it has a really creepy uh, creepy sound effect when you're beaten by the titular Sinistar. That's pretty cool.
6: Beware I live. I know that I've mentioned Tempest on this show before. I love Tempest, even if I'm probably not very good at it. And staying old school, I love Galaga. Yeah. Something about that game, especially when they're coming down and you're able to just pick off all those guys all at one time. It's just like, yeah, yeah, you feel a real sense of accomplishment. Modern-ish video game. I loved Lethal Enforcers. I just loved shooting innocent bystanders. So take from that what you will. All right. We are going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
7: Eddie Murphy is a Detroit cop hey! On vacation in Beverly Hills I
4: just got off the phone with an inspector Todd in Detroit He says if you're out here investigating the Tandino murder You needn't bother coming back I don't take it anymore. Take- For a man who claims to be on vacation You look a lot like you're on a stakeout Stakeout? No, no I'm picnicking, this is like a picnic area I have to ask you some questions about Michael Tandino I've never been to a cell that had a phone in it. Can I stay for a while because I order some pizza? We have six witnesses that say you broke in and started tearing up the place, then jumped out the window.
3: May I help you?
4: Yeah. I'm looking for Victor Meadlin.
3: I have nothing to say to you.
4: You just got your badges and your guns and you're on the job, right? Make sure we get the right drinks. because if my drink club out, Throw up. You know, this is the cleanest and nicest police car I've ever been in in my life. This thing's nice in my apartment. I just bet
2: you are the pride
3: of your department in Detroit. It seems painfully obvious you haven't the slightest idea who you're dealing with. I don't know what y'all
4: think I am. I'm some kind of food. Hurry up, quicker.
3: Call back to your little stone in Detroit before you get squashed.
4: myself.
7: Eddie Murphy, Beverly Hills Cop.
6: That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Beverly Hills Cop, where Mr. Chris Cummins will be joining me again, and he'll be joined with Mr. Elric Kane. Until then, I want to thank Heather and Chris for co-hosting. Now, Heather, you're going to be back in a couple weeks here for uh, Dr. Detroit, another fine cinematic experience. But in the meantime, can you tell folks what you're up to lately?
0: Absolutely. Um, I'm currently in the midst of working on Volume One of the Bizarro Film Encyclopedia with the great John Skip, as well as working on an article about noted Black Sabbath drummer Bill Ward and his brilliant 1990 solo album debut, Ward One. Along the way, for my Sonic Attack column over at DiabolicMagazine.com.
6: And Chris, when you're not hanging out in public restrooms, uh, what are you doing?
1: More hanging out in public restrooms. No, uh, I. You can find my work uh, on Dengeek. Com uh, every Thursday, I review the new episode of Riverdale, which is the uh, CW take on Archie Comics, and uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Bionic Bigfoot and at Sci Fi Explosion.
6: Very cool. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, and find out more about today's episode. And, yeah, like I said, I'll post that uh, amazing SNL short from, I think it was 1983 or 1984 over there. you also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show or go over to our Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every show as long as I'm not running late. And every donation and every rating – helps the projection booth take over the world.
4: Three. to video games, trying to whatever, it didn't matter the name, thousands of my dollars have been poured into all types of games, trying to get the high score, but now I think I have a favorite, it's me against the ape, he's got my girl, I've got to save her, oh no, I feel an attack coming on, yo, ready, Roxy, I want to play a game of Donkey Kong. To the arcade, screaming and hollering, anticipating putting twenty-five dollars in any machine. who was out of control. I didn't need quarters. I brought ten-dollar bank rolls, bags of quarters. I was insane. People thought that I worked there and asked me for change, but I would get defensive and yell, "Leave me alone! These are my quarters, stupid! Go get your own!" Dude walk away with just looking in his eyes like, "Yo, oh man, I wonder what's wrong with that guy." I was addicted, a video burnout, and I would go crazy when the guy would have. To At midnight, I fall to my knees and say, "Have a hard time. One more game." i heard before, and he still had more Then he got me hyped when he played this incredible song And I lost my mind when Ready C played Donkey Kong He makes sounds with his mouth Yo, ready? Give an example of what I'm talking about Game over Yo, man. Why are you still standing there? over.